The Ducks and Kings were California dreaming last year, and by California dreaming, I mean dreaming for a rough and tumble season to finally reach its end. The Golden Knights wished for a better ending, while the Sharks saw another promising season end in disappointment. The Coyotes almost got into the playoff hunt despite injuries galore, and while the Flames were on fire, the same could not be said for the Oilers and Canucks. What will the Pacific Division have in store this year? Plus, in a rapid-fire segment, we got a three-year bridge deal for another big-name RFA, a new home for a veteran defenseman, and legal trouble for a Leafs superstar. Episode 186 of the Lace Up Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Duboff. Before we go any further, as always, we're going to delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? Uh, yes. All right, quickly, because we have a lot to get to. Question 71 is where we are at. When I find it, I will read it. I did not prepare for this. (laughs) All right, here we go. Question 71 is as follows. Inducted together in their first year of eligibility, when did defensive greats Ray Bork, Paul Coffey, and Larry Murphy become Hall of Fame members? A, 2003. B, 2004. C, 2005. Or D, 2006. Um, they were inducted together. Ray Bork, Paul Coffey, Larry Murphy. 0-3-0-4-0-5-0-6. When did it happen? See, now that as a Bruins fan, I should know this, but I wasn't really a fan when Ray Bork, Ray, Ray Bork, Ray Bork was around. So, um, Having said that, I probably should still know that because, um, let's see here. I think they won. When did Ray Bork win his Stanley Cup? It was in 2001. So I'm going to go with 2004 because I think there's a three year wait. Uh, So 2004. Your math bailed you out, Brett. You got it right. Yes. 2004 was the year. Because I had to think of, like, okay, he retired in 2001, I think. Because that was when he won the Cup. And I think he retired right after. I wasn't sure if he played one more season or not. But then, okay. so Yeah, you really had to enter yeah. the Matrix to find that code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. You, you want to, like, I know we have a lot to cover, but do you want to know, like, how dire Boston sports was at that time in 2001? Uh, how, 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 oh, right. Uh, the Red Sox still hadn't won a World Series. Yeah, well, no, well, it's a, okay, it was a rhetorical question. Because you're, you're just supposed to say, how dire was it? And I'll say, and I would say, it was so dire that the, that Ray Bork, we threw a parade for Ray Bork when he won the cup in Colorado. 
That's how dire it was. We threw a parade for a former player. It would be like if, like, let's say the Sharks won uh, the cup uh, last year, and you guys and the Senate Ottawa decides to uh, celebrate his victory or something like that. Um, yeah. Or Mark Stone, I guess, is another equivalent. If Vegas had won, it's like. It was it's it's like it's unthinkable now. It's like what we're we were that desperate for a parade that we had to throw it for someone. I mean, given he played for the Bruins for twenty years, um, which is you know, and he's probably he's on the Mount Rushmore of Bruins players. But it's like, <laughs> geez, we had to yeah, we had to do I, that. Yeah, the Boston doesn't have problem with parades anymore. They, yeah, 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 got, yeah. Route a lot. We, I guess we just, I guess spin zone. You just, we just love parades so much that we, uh, we, uh, we decided to do that. But yeah, so that's that's how uh, that's how bad it was in Boston sports at that time. Anyways, uh, so we do have a lot to cover with, and we're gonna end our pre season preview here. Although I guess next week we're gonna do our actual predictions of who's gonna win the Stanley Cup and who are who's gonna be in the conference finals, but. For now, we're going to preview the Pacific Division um, and um, and all that stuff. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting, too, because it feels like when I was trying to, like, do which teams are going to make the playoffs and which teams weren't, it feels like there's about, like, three good teams and four, and the rest are just, like... Um, they may not be actually that good. Um, they have huge flaws in their system, but um, but it should be interesting nonetheless because that you know a couple of teams could surprise. I feel like um, let's start things off though with uh, Anaheim because we're doing it um, you know alphabetically uh, by team. Um, the only team, the only player that Anaheim added this year was. Um, is uh, Michael Delzato. Um, I assume this is in part because they um, they feel that guys like Sam Steele, guys like Troy Terry, um, Maxime Comtois, those um, Max Jones, uh, those those guys in particular are going to take over. Um, and also, like I think we've mentioned this before, Anaheim had one of the worst injury luck. Um, other than maybe the next team we're about to talk about in Arizona, but like maybe they felt like okay, they like oh, and I guess they uh, they're not gonna have Corey Perry this year. Kessler and uh, Patrick Eves looks like they're about to retire or uh, put on LTIR, um, and uh, so yeah, they're gonna be an interesting team. It does feel like. I do love R Ricard Raquel and John Gibson, but it feels like the rest of the the rest of the squad is kind of um, um, you know a crapshoot. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, how, like it feels like those are the only two good players on the team. Uh, if the if the Ducks are going to surprise, which could happen, I guess. Like it would have to be with one. John Gibson has to like literally stand on his head, although I guess not literally, literally, but like stand on his head for like an entire season. So that means he can't get hurt. 
Uh, Ricard Raquel and Jacob Silverberg have to be great. Andre Cache has to not get injured. And then guys that I just mentioned, like Sam Steele, Maxime Contois, Troy Terry, Max Jones, all those guys have to um, have to be as expected and hyped out. But for now, it seems like this is going to be a top 10 team in the lottery, um, in the draft lottery. Um, I don't think they'll be bad enough to be like to to compete with like Ottawa or Detroit or whatever, but they'll they'll be I wouldn't be surprised if they're in the bottom five um, at the end of the season. Apologies if it sounds like I'm eating because I am and we're recording this at nine thirty at night. I'm uh, having uh, chicken fingers and fries. Okay. So that's good to know. If you hear me if you hear me munching, that's why. Um yeah, to add to your point Brian Getzloff had 48 points in 67 games last year, good enough for 119th on the NHL scoring list. He was their top scorer. Right. Exhibit A, why the Ducks didn't make the playoffs. Yeah. Their leading scorer had 48 points, and they were battling injuries like it. Bright spots, their goal was as rough of a second half as it was for John Gibson. He still had a save percentage over 910 and was really holding the fort in the first half. And then after the all-star break, they went through a two week stretch where they just fell off the face of the earth and never recovered. Yep. And and Ryan Miller had a safe percentage over 910 as well. Um, so their goaltending was a relative bright spot. So were their youngsters. If anything, they got to showcase some of their young stars earlier than expected, perhaps. Guys like Sam Steele, guys like Troy Terry, guys like Maxine Comtois, who in the 10 games he played had seven points. So that was a terrific showing for him in his first NHL stint. Um, I I don't think it's a terrific shot that they have of making the playoffs, though. Um, They still had a bottom 10 power play. They still had a bottom 10 penalty kill last year. Uh, They averaged the seventh most shots against, recorded the lowest shots per game. Uh, out of all 31 teams in terms of score per game average. Uh, only the Tampa Bay Lightning recorded more minor penalties than the Anaheim Ducks did. Uh, the only players to record at least 160 shots were Ricard Raquel and Jakob Silverberg, and neither got to 200. Um, I I just think there are too many gaps. There are too many holes uh, for the Anaheim Ducks to fill, and it just won't be enough. So if... I had to peg this team as far as division rankings go. I am going to pull it's the Anaheim Ducks in sixth place out of eight teams. Oh, wow. I thought, okay, because I had them in seven. Um, having said that, like, I do like the direction that they're going to because I felt like, like, yeah, they have Getzlav and um, they had Perry last year. Um, by the way, Perry, um, is the the other guy that's also not on the team anymore. Um, I mentioned that Kessler and Eves are on LTIR. Uh, but, um, they don't have Perry anymore. Eves was getting older even, like, before he was put on LTIR. Same with Kessler. So it's like, I do enjoy this, like, youth movement that they're going for. Because that is what they should be doing. But this is where the growing pains start. Um, so yeah, I have them at seven because 
Like, but like having said that, I wouldn't be surprised if they get as high as five, just because of how bad the Pacific is. But um, I have them at seventh at the moment. Uh, players to watch for you. You had the player to watch. Yeah, so my choice is Sam Steele. Okay. Um, his, his junior career, man, it, it's got me hyped for this kid. Um, as a member of the Regina Pats, he was tremendous. Um, as the years went along in the WHL, he seemed to get better and better every year, more dominant every single year. Uh, he had 70 points in 72 regular season games. Um, in his second full season, I believe, um, and in 12 playoff games, he had 16 points that year. Um, in year three, he was just all world. He had a 50 goal season, over 130 points. He added 11 goals and 30 points in the playoffs. He then got a whopping 13 points in five games at the MasterCard Memorial Cup and he was voted the most outstanding player of that Memorial Cup tournament. And while his final year of junior wasn't as explosive, he still had 33 goals and 83 points and another 11 and seven playoff games. So um, the fact that he had some sort of NHL success last year wasn't as surprising. Um, his, his NHL stats last year, um, for those who aren't familiar, um, oh, just taking a look at, um, well, I actually don't have uh, his NHL stats on me, but he also spent time in the AHL where he did more of the same. He had 41 points in 53 games, was a 20 goal score. And then in 16 playoff games, he had six goals and 13 points. So already transitioning to a higher level, um, he made it look rather seamless. And if he continues to develop at this rate, he's going to be very fun to watch, and he's going to rise up the NHL ranks very, very quickly. I'm really looking out for this kid, and I'm really interested to see what he brings to the table uh, in Anaheim and to the NHL as a whole. Um, I really, really think um, the sky's the limit for him. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was drafted with one of the two picks that the Leafs got in the Freddie or the uh, one of the uh, picks the Leafs gave away in the Freddie Anderson deal. So, oh, well. um, imagine him on the Leafs. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's go to. Yeah. No, that's a good pick because he. It looks like he's just according to Daily Faceoff, he's going to be the second line center. Um, and he's going to be paired with Ricard Raquel and Jacob Silverberg. So. Uh, that could be an interesting move if he does uh, pan out uh, this year, especially this year, of course. All right, let's go to Arizona. Um, if you thought Anaheim had bad injury luck, uh, Arizona may have been worse. I think they had like the most man games lost out of any team in the NHL last year. Um, it's still going to continue because apparently Antti Ranta is, um, is like... Ha is still injured so he's gonna miss part of the uh like part of october i don't know it's it's unclear how long he's going to be out but they said that it's not as serious as it was last year um of course anti ranta got injured around like january even like before then and um he um and then he uh and then darcy kemper kind of took over and he actually played pretty well um, so they may do it, end up doing a tandem anyway, uh, anyways. And then guys like Nick Schmaltz, 
uh, was uh, back was hurt. Uh, uh, Christian Dvorak was hurt for a time. Jacob Chikrin. Um, there was a couple of other guys that I'm not. I can't. I forget. But um, those guys were also injured as well. Um, so it should be um, interesting. Hopefully, these all these guys are healthy because then it's like you know maybe if if a team is going to turn it around it's because they ha finally have a healthy lineup um and speaking of which another reason is is that they finally went out and got their big gun um it was phil kessel uh they got in a trade um uh to from pittsburgh of course and uh i mean they did tr end up uh trading away galchenyuk but they, uh, you know, Phil Kessel and like Phil Kessel obviously still has some defensive um, instabilities to him or, you know, negatives about him in that regard where he's only like one dimensional in that sense. But still, he was a one, you know, he only, he was a point per game player um, on the Penguins. Um, of course, you know, yeah, it helps when you have Malkin as your line mate even though they didn't get along apparently, but um, still that makes it even more impressive. Um, uh, and also, they also added uh, Carl Soderberg. Um, they got rid of Galchenyuk. I, I put out that uh, Kevin Kanaden uh, was also um, on its way out, but I guess um, Colorado decided to drop them to, uh, drop him to, or cut him um, earlier today. So I think Maybe it's not going to be as big of a deal. Um, so, uh, yeah, Arizona sh is an interesting team because they almost made the playoffs despite being one of the lowest scoring teams in the league. I think, like, Clayton Keller was their highest point getter um, on their team last year, and he only had, like, 50 points, um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. They're adding Phil Kessel. Um, Darcy Kemper was like stole the show um, in in Arizona when he got the net um, after Auntie Ranta thing. So they ended up actually like um, doing really well even without healthy players. Then you add a guy like Phil Kessel and you add um, and hopefully assuming all these people are healthy again, Nick Schmaltz was good when he was traded to Arizona. But then he got injured for most of the year, so it's um, it's going to be an interesting thing because this team could surprise um, this year based off of maybe being healthy and maybe um, you know the Kessel effect. Um, so I guess uh, should I say where I have them going? I have them. I'm assuming that they're going to be healthy. Um, I'm assuming that Kessel is going to make a big difference, and I I think Ranta is one of the most underrated players or goaltenders in the league. So I'm hoping that he's healthy at least for the full year. Um, so I have them at four, though, just missing the playoffs. But I have them at fourth, which is uh, pretty good for, for Arizona. Let me remind you that uh, five of the seven teams in the Central made it because it was so good. So you never know. Finishing fourth yeah. might not be the end of the world for the Arizona Coyotes. True. Um, their, their, their problem is scoring goals. Yep. And uh, like you said, that's why Bill Kessel's on the team. 
yeah. he's there to help with that. Um, taking a look at it, it's funny. I was taking a look at the NHL's website. Do you know that for an 18 division, three of the Pacific teams finished in the NHL's top four for fewest goals scored last year. And the Canucks were six. So if you want to do a top 10 for fewest goals manufactured, half of the Pacific division is in there. Wow. Which is absolutely bonkers. Well, I mean, when you consider the fact that it's like Arizona, LA, Anaheim, um, Edmonton, like Vancouver, it's like, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's just the fact that it's all from one yeah. division. It's just like you have the the four, uh, you have the top four and the bottom four that barely can score to save their freaking life. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's more top three and then bottom five, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Canucks are still near the bottom five. In any yeah. case, uh, not what I'm talking about just yet. Although we will talk about the Canucks because they're course. also in this division. Uh, the Coyotes. Uh, we're fourth on that list of uh, 10 lowest scoring teams, by the way. Um, and it might explain why their bottom 10 power play didn't do so well. Um, what's interesting is the Arizona Coyotes actually had their chances on the power play. They actually had the fourth most minutes with the extra man. They just struggled to cash in. Like you said, they struggled to score goals. And I think part of the reason, like you said, is due to those injuries because you have Nick Schmaltz coming in, being a point-per-game player, suffers a mid-season injury, his season's over. Um, you have a guy like Mikhail Grabner, who is in essence a power play presence when killing penalties. He had six short-handed goals. The dude only played in 41 games, though. Right. Uh, you have Christian Dvorak, he only appeared in... You have Jacob Churn, who appeared in 53 games. Um, of course, Dylan Strom and Brendan Berlini were a part of a mid-season trade with Chicago. So it's really tough for a team to gain a lot of chemistry with a certain group of guys when it's yeah. just a revolving door of players. And this was a team that, plain and simple, just had to adapt to get into the playoffs, to have a shot at the playoffs. And the individual stats, as a result, I think, took a backseat, and team play was above everything else and yep. i don't think those stats indicate that the arizona coyotes were a trash hockey club with a trash offense if they were bad they wouldn't have finished one point out of the final wild card spot in the west last year and i take a look at some of the competition in their division and i definitely think a top four spot is possible and you mentioned him earlier and his name is phil kessel um he is an established star playing in the prime of his career. They haven't had that since Jeremy Roenick and Keith Kachuk in uh, the 1990s. Um, the fans are immediately buying in, like when the Kessel trade happened, we mentioned on the podcast before, that the ticket, merch, sales, um, whatever kind of revenue you can think of, it was probably going up because everyone realized, oh my God, Phil Kessel is an Arizona Coyote. I am so on this bandwagon. I so want to cheer for this team. I love this team. Yep. And it, it just really brought about a lot of hype, a lot of expectation for this organization. And they get a new majority owner who feels the same way, who wanted the Kessel deal to happen, is big on winning. It just brings about a positive vibe that Arizona hasn't seen in quite some time. And 
I think Phil Kessel over the past couple of years in Pittsburgh posted tremendous numbers, numbers that he probably won't put up in Arizona because he's not playing with Crosby and Malkin on the regular. However, before he went to Pittsburgh, he was on the Toronto Maple Leafs for six years. And in five of those six years, he surpassed 280 shots. He was a 30 goal scorer in four of his six years in Toronto. He had a pair of 80 point seasons and he was the star of that team. He, in my opinion, can still be the star in a team that needs a star player and bringing in that reputation of being a top scorer has got a lot of people excited. Um, he knows Rick Tockett from his days in Pittsburgh, which also helps. And I think for many, many reasons, it's a very pivotal year for the organization because just imagine, imagine if the power play gets going. Imagine if the penalty kill that brought him 16 goals shorthanded is just as deadly. Imagine if they stay healthy. Imagine if their goaltending tandem of Darcy Kemper and Antti Ranta turns out to be this year's Ben Bishop and Anton Hudobin. The sky is the limit if everything goes right for this team. And they could be the biggest surprise in the NHL this year. For now, though, I think fourth is a safe place to put him in the Pacific. So you also they're going to have to be very, very good to edge out one of those top three teams okay. in the Pacific. Um, so for my – yeah, that's good. Uh, by the way, before I get to my player to watch, I was just looking at their stats here. Um, there are only two players on the team to get to, for you guys to get the sense of how hurt Arizona was. There were only two guys who played 80 or more games um, last year um, in terms of skaters, um, and that's Clayton Keller and OEL. And uh, Clayton Keller had 47 points um, in those 82 games, and OEL had 44 points in 81 games. So those were the only two that had at least decent numbers um, for, for the year, um, and they remained healthy. But it's, you know, it's still interesting. Um, so you kind of touched on it already because Phil Kessel, um, I find, is the most interesting player on this team uh just because it's like it's unclear about how he's going to do uh when he doesn't have crosby when he doesn't have malkin um i i do believe that he'll be pretty good still um but uh since you can make a case that he is their best player i didn't go with him i also kind of wanted to go with the anti-ranta darcy kemper stuff but i kind of already went through that already um i love connor garland and I love Jacob Chikrin, um, but I feel like uh, they're a little bit too under the radar, almost. Um, yeah. But I'm going to go with Nick Schmaltz here. Um, okay. That's a good pick. I, so I, I just wanted to make sure that people know that there's, there's a fair amount of interesting guys on this team. Um, but uh, Nick Schmaltz is what I'm going to go with because when he was traded... Uh, from Chicago, um, they, you know, it was from Dylan Strom to Nick Schmaltz. Almost immediately, Nick Schmaltz uh, kind of took off. Um, he had, uh, on the, when he was on Arizona, 
Um, he only played 20 games for Arizona, but when he was there, he had uh, a 14 points in 17 games. Uh, five of them were goals, nine assists. That I mean, obviously, that's like very, very good. Um, and I don't, I mean, it's not really sustainable. But like when I look at what Dylan Strom was able to do in Chicago, where he basically solidified himself as the second line center, uh, Nick Schmoltz kind of like would have be pretty good if he was healthy. Um, and uh, he was starting to help out Arizona in a similar way. Because it looks like he, I'm looking at Daily Faceoff, it looks like he's going to be on the second line with. Christian Dvorak and Connor Garland. Um, but the first line center is Derek Stepan. And maybe I could see Nick Schmaltz, if he plays well enough, I could see those Stepan and Schmaltz kind of switch where uh, Schmaltz will be playing with Kessel and Keller. Um, oh, oh my God. I wish I was just thinking about this. What if Arizona gets Ryan Kessler? And then you put the, so you'd have the Kessel, Keller, and Kessler line. Um, anyways, <laughs> um, you, uh, Nick Schmaltz, um, I'm, I'm sidetracked here, uh, but, uh, but Nick Schmaltz could, if he's healthy, that's going to be the big issue here. It's if he's healthy, he could make the difference between um, the Arizona Coyotes making the, the playoffs versus, you know, being a lottery team or barely making the playoffs. So it's, it's all going to depend on how good he is because he could be a difference maker. Um, and especially with how good Dylan Strom has been in Chicago, I bet you that Arizona wants to prove that they made the right move by getting rid of Dylan Strom. Um, and yeah. so they're going to give him a lot of opportunities too. Um, so I, I think he's going to be a, a fascinating player to watch. But there's a lot of fascinating players on Arizona in general that I almost couldn't pick which ones. Um, so, yeah, we both have them for, going fourth. Um, let's go to Calgary here. Um, they made a couple of moves here, kind of, some interesting, some not. Um, the main one is that they traded Milan Lucic, uh, or they traded for Melon Lucic, um, and they traded away James Neal after a year um, where they got him off of free agency. Um, they also got uh, another former Edmonton Oiler um, in Cam Talbot. Um, and to add to this, they today they uh, assigned uh, Tobias Reeder, who is another former Edmonton Oiler, um, and Zach Ronaldo to uh, two-way deals. Um, so that's another one that could may maybe make a difference eventually, but um, they'll probably be bottom six players anyways. But um, on the way out is uh, James Neal and Mike Smith. Um, those are kind of the only two big ones that were left off, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, I guess they kind of spent most of their time trying to sign um, Matt Kachuk um, and Sam Bennett needed also to resign, so they were one of those teams that needed to figure out their cap situation before, and they that kind of uh, dwindled their hopes of signing a big free agent. Um, but having said that, they kind of didn't even need to do that because they had, you know, they kind of broke out last year. 
Johnny Gaudreau um, had um, a career year, uh, which is impressive for him, and he sort of solidified himself as being one of the best hockey players in the league. 99 points in 82 games. Uh, also, of course, Sean Monahan, Elias Lindholm, Matthew Kachuk was also great too. Um, and then you have guys like Mark Giordano, who also had a great time too. Uh, Noah Hannafin had his moments, same with TJ Brody. Uh, so it's, I, I hate when I like list all the different guys on their teams, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, um, I think the big issue here though for Calgary is, is one, uh, what's their, their goalie situation? Uh, David Riddick was decent, like serviceable, but still looking at his stats, he had nine eleven a nine eleven save percentage, a 2.61 GAA. Um, you add a guy like Cam Talbot, maybe he can, uh, bounce back. Um, but still like I don't know if David Riddick's going to be the guy so there are questions at net uh, Mark Giordano is getting up there in age I believe he's he's 35 years old not I believe I know he's 35 years old um, so that's going to be an interesting situation too because um, you know can he be able to sustain that 74 points in 78 games um, that I'm not necessarily sure um, and also it's like, you know, maybe those are probably the two biggest issues, but having said that, I still think they're good enough to make the playoffs because Johnny Goudreau is that good. Matthew, Matthew Kachuk is that good. And, um, and Sean Monaghan is that good. So, so that's where I come in. I, I have them going third. Um, we'll talk about Matthew Kachuk, uh, resigning in a minute, but um, what is your take on Calgary as a team? Uh, just a little side note. Uh, I believe on October 3rd, March year, Daniel thir- uh, turns 36. So on the off chance, okay. Mark, you're listening to this. Happy birthday, buddy. Yeah, happy uh, birthday. So I do believe he will soon be 36 years old. Okay. So even slightly older than 35, but still Yeah, it says on Cap Friendly that he's 35, so... <laughs> Um, For the yeah. time being, at the time we're recording this podcast, yeah. he is 35 years right, old. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, the Flames as a team last year. Um, the good news for them, goaltending question marks aside, it's easy to win when you don't give up too many shots, and they surrendered the fewest out of any team per game, and they built a, a top three offensive team in the process. So um, that that was pretty impressive for Bill Peters to do in his first year. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau was so, so close to a 100-point season. He got 99 points and 36 goals. Um, also the top 10 score in the league. So uh, he gained some notoriety there. Um, interesting thing about Calgary is their power play wasn't all that elite. They were actually 18th out of 31 teams in power play percentage success. Um, and only Colorado drew more time in the power play than they did. So it's not like they had a lack of opportunities. They had plenty to score. Um, and, you know, if they get their power play figured out to this year and take that next step, just imagine how scary they could be this year. Um, oftentimes what they would also do is they would use their speed and skill to create takeaways. And they ended up being the third best NHL team in that department in terms of creating takeaways. 
Uh, but uh, only Florida turned the puck. The Flames uh, taketh, they also giveth away in that uh, in that sense. So they didn't really have much of an edge there. Um, but they still won 50 games and clinched top spot in the division, um, despite all the question marks, despite all the hiccups. Um, but then the playoffs came around, and for, for whatever reason, after a solid game one, McKinnon won that game in overtime for Colorado, and the series just seemed to turn on a dime, and Calgary was giving up like 30 to 40 shots a game, and Mike Smith was under siege, and they just didn't look like themselves. It was just a complete 360 from what they had done in the regular season. And I think the one positive to take away from last year was not only the lessons learned, but the strong play from a lot of the major members, guys like Mark Giordano, um, guys like Elias Lindholm, who um, Brad uh, Treliving predicted was going to have a big year, and he had exactly that. He had a 78-point season, finished three goals shy of 30. He had 26 power play points, which are second on the team. Um, you had Matthew Kachuk posting a big year on the second line. Uh, David Riddick, as you mentioned, really grabbing the reins mid-season for Mike Smith. So as disappointing as it was the ending to last year, the Flames took a big step. They learned a tough lesson. They had a summer to sit and stew about it. And they took a big step forward. And they need that big step forward to take the next big step forward. And I think it's a really big window for them right now to win the championship because beyond next year, beyond the year after that, you don't know how many solid years of Mark Giordano you're going to get from here on out. You don't know um, how the defense is going to look after this year because there's a lot of guys on the back end they're going to have to resign. Once that Elias Lindholm deal expires and if he continues to produce at this rate, he won't be such a bargain signing for much longer because he's going to want to get his money too. I definitely think that Calgary Flames are a playoff team if the veterans show up and if the veterans do their part but they are not a Stanley Cup contender unless the bottom six really get to work. I'm talking about the likes of Sam Bennett. I'm talking about the likes of Mark Jankowski. Um, I'm talking about the likes of Dylan Dubé, who's a prospect that hopefully makes the NHL transition and does very well. Um, but th there have been some question marks around his game lately. Um, so. The, the depth on defense, the depth on forwards, it has to be rock solid for Calgary to take that next step. Um, and Cam Talbot's got to be stable behind David Rick because David Rick can do it all by himself. So um, you said Calgary in third place in the division? Uh, I Yeah, I third. Well, so do I. So we're on the same wavelength again. Nice. Uh, we should also, I mean... We, we should mostly... Oh, by the way, I think we missed this, but pretty much every RFA signed, uh, major RFA signed this week. Um, we'll talk about it uh, a couple next week, but since Matthew Kachuk is on the Calgary Flames, which is the team we're talking about right now, um, I figured we should mention him right now. Uh, Matthew Kachuk signed uh, with Calgary, uh, $7 million, uh annual average value um, for three years. Um, 
he's still going to be an RFA at the end of that year, but uh, this is like a pretty good uh, deal for them. Uh, you know, he's only 21 years old. Uh, he kind of adds that grit and sandpaper um, that uh, Johnny, Gaud I mean Johnny Gaudreau and Sean Monahan are phenomenal players, of course. But they're like, you know, they hardly ever like, you know, are physical or um and all that stuff. Whereas Matthew Kachuk has is slowly kind of becoming that, um, that Brad Marchand, Tom Wilson type player, um, where he gets under the opponent's skin and he uh, he kind of intimidates them, and that and and that in turn kind of makes it harder for any guys to run at Johnny Gaudreau or at Sean Monahan because they know that Matthew Kachuk is about to run on them. Um, so it's um, so that that is a a good uh, deal for them, and he, not only that is he intimidating. He's like, you know, he's also very good um, offensively speaking as well. Um, he had 77 points in 80 games. I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes like a point per game player um, for a couple more years. Um, so um, I, I like this signing. It's 7 million at the moment, which I mean, it's, you know, it's it's not like cheap or anything, but it's, I, I feel like if he was a UFA, um, he would be getting like, a ton more so so it's a good deal in that sense yeah what's interesting about Matthew Kachuk is even as a rookie he's been a top five scorer um his 48 points as a rookie um put him in the top five um Johnny Gaudreau uh, that year had uh, 61 points he was uh, the leading scorer yeah, three hundred, three other skaters posting fifty plus points, but Kachuk's forty-eight points were enough to give him a top five showing. And even as a rookie, he had uh, double-digit point totals on the power play, um, thirty-five assists as well, and he didn't even average fifteen minutes per game as a rookie. So for a rookie season, he was pretty good. And then you look at his second year, where his time on ice goes up by two minutes and 35 seconds per game and then he averages um a second shy of three minutes on the power play per game and um he gets 10 power play goals and he gets 188 shots and then the goal totals go up a little bit they're uh they go up from 13 to 24 in a, in a year um and back back in his second year much like uh, the first year, he was doing that on the second line. And then you get to this year's stats, and he's still on line two, playing with guys like Mikhail Furlik and Mikhail Backlund. With all due respect, they're good players, but Goudreau and Monaghan are cut above a lot of the players on the Calgary Flames. And Matthew Kachuk didn't really spend that much time with the likes of Sean Monaghan and Johnny Gaudreau yeah. and he still got over 70 points he had 19 goals and 48 points in his first 43 games and 18 of his 24 power play points in that first half um, he was spending a lot of specialty uh, a lot of his time on the special teams run he had over 255 minutes of power play time um and you, you could go on and on about the impact that he had on the Flames. He just went over 200 shots. 
and he's only played three full NHL seasons. And a lot of that, again, has been as a second-line player. So imagine if he somehow gets on the first line, what kind of damage he can do. And if he doesn't, and he still puts up 70 points as a secondary scorer, well, then you're hitting a home run if you're Brad Trill living because you could maybe keep Elias Lindholm on the top line and he's killing it with uh, Johnny Hockey and Sean Monaghan and he's putting up 70 plus points like you said the edge took a chuck where he's not afraid to get dirty he's not afraid to mix it up that's the kind of thing that Calgary needs because you know getting a guy like Zach Ronaldo who they brought into the fold to kind of protect um, the guy's uh, you know that maybe Mac and Chuck would be trying to protect like their top line players um, Zach Ronaldo is good at that and only that Mac and Chuck can do so much more he can agitate you he can get under your skin he can frustrate the top skaters he already has made a lifetime mark on Drew Doughty Drew Doughty can't stand the guy he hates yeah. his guts he is not a Matt Kachuk fan, and if he continues to evolve into this player that can hit, that can shoot, that can score, um, he's going to be a longtime member of the Calgary Flames because players of Matty Kachuk's caliber are very hard to find. The one thing that the Flames are going to have to deal with is that at the same time Makachuk is an RFA three years down the road, Johnny Gaudreau is a pending unrestricted free agent. Ooh, so they're going to have to sign both of those guys. Yeah. And Makachuk at the moment, I believe, is the highest paid Calgary Flame. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see what Johnny Gaudreau demands. And Mark, when, you're... When, he is, when he's up for a new contract and can sign anywhere he and Mark Giordano is also a UFA as well. Yeah, and by then he'll probably be nearing towards retirement right, right, right. age. So, but um, I mean, yeah, that's it, still it, six million off the him, books. But you know, Johnny Gaudreau will be in his prime by that point. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, well, he, he's technically already in his prime, but I'm saying that's like six point seven five off the books. Um, of course, you're still losing a guy like Mark Giordano. But, uh, but yeah, those three are going to be off the books in there. And it's still, it looks like, just looking at their cap situation, most of their defensemen, other than Hannafin and Giordano, are going to be free agents next year. Um, and then, um, and there's only a couple of forwards that are going to be free agents next year. So it's, um, so they're, they're going to have some money to move around. Um, when in, in, in three years uh, to hand over to those two guys. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's where it benefits Calgary now because they're not paying Kachuk his full value right, right now, and that allows them to keep their championship window open for a bit longer. Yeah. If they gave him what he wanted right now, it would be tougher to do. But now three years down the road, you can manage your money a little bit better. But and, still... It won't come cheap to re-sign Gaudreau and Kachuk because they're going to come in. Yeah, of course. And Kachuk's going to be an RFA, so it's not like yeah, he so doesn't have a time. Yeah, they still have him on club control, yeah. but Gaudreau won't be. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I, I feel like they'll have, an, like, they'll have enough money 
to uh, to be able to afford whatever he uh, he wants. Um, but uh, yeah, let's. Uh, so your player to watch. Who's your player to watch on Calgary? My player to watch is Big Save David Rick. Okay. Um, big year last year. Um, it's very important for a goalie not only to be playing well, but to be in the right state of mind uh, to not feel any pressure or not to be afraid of the pressure just to embrace the moment and because half of the game i feel for a goaltender is mental like if you really overthink your position you can get caught in a rut so fast and before you know it you got like a four or five game losing streak going and nothing seems to go your way and david riddick right now he feels good um he feels he feels confident in his abilities he feels motivated to build on what he accomplished last year um at the same time he also knows that it doesn't matter what he feels or what he says all that matters is results and he got 27 victories last year only started 42 games um i think the best of david riddick is yet to come and I think if he continues to keep that that positive mindset, thirty to thirty-five wins is definitely possible for Reddit this year. I really, really think it's possible. But um, managing his workload is going to have to be key, and in order for that to happen, Cam Talbot is going to have to do his part as well. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Although I was just noticing that he has a nine eleven save percentage. Um, that's very, he's, he's bordering on Martin Jones, um, level of, should we actually be worried, um, type situation. So, um, that is a good pick. Um, I'm kind of curious to see how Cam Talbot will do, but yeah, their goalie situation is going to be something that we should keep an eye on, um, in the coming months. Um, in fairness to David Riddick, Martin Jones has had a lot more time to adjust in this league, whereas he hasn't. And Martin Jones also played in more games than Riddick did last year, if I'm not mistaken, too. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair. But, I mean, at, at the same time, I don't know. Um, it, it's like it's still like David Riddick still had about like 40 games to, to play last year. It's not like he's going to, I don't know. It's not like he, all of a sudden he's going to be a phenomenal goalie. Um, that's my point, basically. Um, anyways, uh, we are going to, our next team that we're going to talk about is Edmonton. Um, yeah, speak, speaking of goalie question marks. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Edmonton that's Oilers. Point. Right, right, right. Oh, man. Um, the interesting, I mean, the thing about Edmonton is they have, um, they have about, like, three good, great players, um, Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Darnell Nurse, although we're un- it's unclear if Dreisaitl and Nurse can sustain their abilities. I mean, I guess you all can also say Ryan Eugene Hopkins as well. Um, yeah, so that's four. So yeah, so they have four really, really good players. Um, other than that, it's pretty much a crapshoot again. Um, I hate yeah. to use that word again, but um, Arizona, it's very much like Arizona in that sense where it's like, you know, there's the cream of the crop where it's like a lot of good players and then there's a huge drop off between players that um, aren't as good. Um, they, so they got rid of Milan Lucic, but they 
um, gained James Neal um, and Mike Smith. Um, they also added Riley Sheehan. Um, I put a question mark, and you didn't put this in your notes, but I guess Sam Gagne did play uh, for 25 games in Edmonton. I thought he wasn't playing at all. Um, they won't have uh, uh, Milan Lucic, as I mentioned, and they won't have Andre Sakara. Um, I mean, technically they didn't have Cam Talbot, but since he was uh, traded to Philadelphia before the trade deadline, I didn't include it, but I guess technically they they did have him last year. He just, yeah. you know, wasn't there. Um, yeah, by, by the way, Stolarz, who they got in that Cam Talbot trade, is also not there, so they right. didn't have him. Either. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I guess I could have mentioned that, but he, I don't even think... Oh, no, he's on Anaheim, right? Um, yeah, he is. So I was about to say I don't know if he's on the league in the league anymore, but um, yeah. So uh, their their goaltending situation is even crazier because they had Miko Koskinen, um, who had a save percentage of um, 9.06, a 2.93 GAA. Um, he was kind of terrible. Like he was decent towards the beginning of the year, but then it seemed like teams started to figure it out. I think like. I remember hearing that like he had a um, like people figured out that he was bad on his glove side or something like that, and he never really worked on it for some reason. Um, so that that's like the scouting report on him. Um, then you add a guy like Mike Smith, who struggled in Calgary, and they have a much better defense. So that's where it gets like a little dicey, where both of these guys are going to be pretty inconsistent. Um, and that's where um, it goes on. And it, it, it feels like, you know, Connor McDavid is, to take it to baseball, is very much like Mike Trout, where um, Mike Trout is, like, probably the best baseball player we've ever seen in the modern era. But uh, he plays on a terrible team, um, and the Angels cannot like build around him properly enough and like sure uh Edmonton has Leon Dreisaitl um Ryan Eugene Hopkins Darnell Nurse um those guys are good but it's like it's still like they're not, they're not at the level at McDavid or even close to it at that point so it, it's like um and like you know it's obviously not one player can uh, like, you know, it's a team sport. It's not a individual sport. If it was, then McDavid would, you know, lead the Edmonton Oilers to multiple Stanley Cups because he's clearly the best player in the league. But at the same time, it's, um, it's who you build around and their depth is probably one of the worst. Um, it's unclear if, um, and then, and that takes me to my next point where, I mean, yeah, James Neal, he could have a bounce back season, but it's really going to rely on Je uh, if Jesse Pugliarvi, um is going to, uh, you know, come back from uh, Finland or wherever he is. Um, there's also uh, Kali, uh, I always mispronounce his first name, Yamamoto. Um, if he's going to come back and, uh, and help out, um, of course, you have Drysaddle and uh, Ryan Eugene Hopkins and Nurse had a breakout year as well. 
but like who else is going to like take off the load when Connor McDavid is being like you know really well defended um and that's that's the tricky part and um so that's where I get a little bit nervous and their goaltending situation as well so I have them going having said all that I don't see them finishing below Anaheim or Detroit uh, or Detroit or LA so but I I can't see them being ahead of Anaheim or Vancouver so I'm gonna put them sixth and I guess I just spoiled my pick but I'm gonna go with six for Edmonton yeah yeah I I, I just look at their roster as a whole and it just absolutely baffles me um Honestly, Leon Dreisaitl, 50-goal score. Yep. Hits 100 points. Connor McDavid, number 97, scores 41 goals, finishes the year with 116 points. The only reason he doesn't get the top score award is because Nikita freaking Kucherov lights the world on fire and puts forth the best scoring season by a Russian in NHL history and the best scoring performance anyone has ever seen in this league in well over a decade. That's the only reason why Connor McDavid didn't win the scoring title was because Nikita Kucherov was that great. Him and Dreisaitl combined for six overtime winners and 14 game-winning goals. And 16 power play goals for Dreisaitl as well. And yet, despite that, the Oilers, the Edmonton Oilers, missed the playoffs by 11 points. How can you explain that? I just, I'm astounded how you have two of the top score in the league and can't even come close to a wild card spot. It's absolutely spectacularly horrid. Well, and can I, I oh, sorry, go on. You're, you're, you're still ranting. I was just going to say that according to the Edmonton management, it's because Tobias Reader was not good enough. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, blame it on the death guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the yeah, death they, part, right. yeah. The death guys, they should have done more, but Tobias Reader's not the reason they missed the playoffs. Right, right. That. Yeah, by the way, Tobias Reader scored two goals against the Oilers in a preseason game. Yeah, it was preseason. But, <laughs> man, I'm sure that felt good for him. I'm sure, way. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the Oilers... The reason they failed is they struggled, uh, or they didn't struggle. They relied on one thing to get them over the hump last year, hope. They hoped that Milan Lucic would return to form. They hoped the bottom six could deliver. They hoped that Miko Koskinen could t- continue his hot start to the season. And their reward for all of that hope was failure. Top 10 power play in terms of conversion percentage, but 
only Detroit, Dallas, and Toronto generated less time with the extra man last season. So even though when they went to the power play, they were lethal, they didn't really give themselves too many chances to score on the power play. They weren't generating too many power play chances. And the only team with the worst penalty kill than them was the Blackhawks, who gave up the second most goals against um, in the entire league last year. And they, you add that with, you know, the continuous struggle to win face-offs because, you know, outside of McDavid and Nugent Hopkins, they have nobody. And I, I, I just look at everything that the Calgary Flames did right, the Oilers didn't do right. Yep. The Flames were in the NHL's top five at winning face-offs. And their depth guys at times stepped up when called upon. And guys like Tobias Reeder, even though it wasn't all his fault, he could have done more, and it just didn't happen. And Brian Spooner and Ryan Strom had opportunities to do more, and they didn't deliver. Uh, Jesse Pugliarvi, uh, that was mostly on the Oilers, but he didn't do much either. Milan Lucic, the guy they were paying six-plus million years to score goals went like 30 to 45 games without scoring one. It just so much hope on this team was dashed because that's all they relied on. They were relying on a pipe dream and it bit them hard last year. And just looking at the improvements they've made within their organization, getting a brilliant mind in Kenny Holland, who I think is better than the one they had prior to that in Peter Shirelli. Bringing in a coach like Dave Tippett, who kind of knows Mike Smith uh, and, and what he provides, and bringing in Mike Smith, who knows what Dave Tippett is all about and what he provides. Just adding a bit of competency in the front office is huge for this team. But adding so much competency up front without making changes to the pieces that you have and again relying on the depth guys like Marcus Nygaard like Gaten Haas like Riley Sheehan they're doing the same thing as they did last year they're relying on hope they're hoping their goaltending can bounce back they're hoping the depth guys can deliver and all that hope is going to lead do more of the same and to be perfectly honest Brett I think six isn't low enough I'm putting them seventh okay interesting um yeah I mean I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they uh get seventh um but um at the same time it's like tough to really it's like they can't be that bad you know that's that's where it gets you it's like well, they still have the best player in the league. They still have, like, Drysaddle, who had 100 points last year as well. You know, it's like, can they actually be that bad? Um, and I guess the answer is yes. Um, I do I do have some good news for you Edmonton Oilers fans. Okay. David and Drysaddle will both have 100 point seasons, at least. They will both hit the century mark again. I agree. And it won't matter again. I agree that McDavid will. I'm not sure about Drysaddle. I, I think he still will have a great year. I don't know if he'll hit that 100-point uh, mark yet. Um, but we'll see. Um, so, 
as for the players to watch on Edmonton, there's a couple here. I was thinking of going with like James Neal or Ryan Nugent Hopkins because they're going to be a big part of, you know, the core, like their depth stuff, which is a big need for them. Um, as well as maybe like Alex um, Chieson, uh, if Kyler Yamamoto can make a, a run in Edmonton or something like that. But um, I, I started to do a, uh, I'm going to do a, an audible here. And I'm going to talk about Oscar Clefbaum. Um, okay. He, uh, so Dar as I mentioned before, Darnell Nurse had a phenomenal year last year. He had like 41 points, 82 games. Um, they also drafted a guy last year um, in Evan Bouchard, who's probably going to uh, take some minutes off of Oscar Clefbaum. Um, it looks like there's a guy named Joel Person who uh, Edmonton has been using on their power play for some time as well, which is kind of strange. But do you remember when Oscar Clefbaum was like one of the best, like was like was in the playoffs and like Oscar Clefbaum was their best defenseman? Uh, oh, yeah, I, 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 rem I remember that when, uh, I think it was in 2016-17, yep. he was one of their best defensemen, if not the best defenseman. Yeah, he was. And I'm looking here, I mean... I guess it wasn't that great because he only had 38 points in 82 games. But at the same time, I'm looking here. He had like 201 shots. He had um, uh, he was like uh, he had 146 blocks, 43 uh, hits, and then the next two years he gets injured, um, and he misses about 20 games or so. He misses 66 games so um, in 2017, 2018. Um, and he gets 21 points. Um, and then last season, he has 28 points in 61 games. Um, he still had like 200 shots on, on goal. Um, it's just he, he wasn't getting lucky um, in that sense because he wasn't scoring goals. He only had five goals last year. He had five goals the year before that. Um, and he had 12 um, in his big season um, when they made the playoffs. So... Um, and it's, it's interesting, too, because now Darnell Nurse has kind of taken his power play time. You also have Evan Bouchard, um, you know, in the minors. Uh, he may end up being called up eventually. We'll see. Uh, this Joel Person guy, it's like, uh, like the time, if Oscar, I mean, he's only, Oscar Clefham is 26 right now. Um so like he's still relatively young relatively speaking in terms of hockey but it's like if he's not going to get going uh when is that going to happen he has to either be traded or he has to like something's going to have to happen where he's going because he is a good defenseman it's just uh it looks like uh he's kind of run out of favor in edmonton um, and that's, and, and I kind of wonder if, like, maybe if, if Clefbaum was more involved, um, in their offense, maybe, then I think maybe Edmonton might be better off, but we'll see how that goes. But that's why he's my pick, because I feel like if he does have a good season, then maybe we're talking about a, like, um, like a dark horse team here, um. Uh, like they may end up making the playoffs even. Um, I know, yeah. crazy. <laughs> How good they will be if they get to the playoffs remains to be seen. You do allude to one thing when you talk about Evan Bouchard. 
their prospect system hasn't looked this good in a while. True. Um, because on top of Evan Bouchard, they also have Dmitry Samarukov. Um, they have goaltenders like Dylan Wells, Shane Sterrett, Stuart Skinner. They have uh, forwards like Tyler Benson, Cooper Rohde, Joey Gambardella. And if they continue to trust the process and develop their talent, they yeah. they might not have the bottom six depth right now, but in a couple of years, they just might. And not to mention, you didn't even mention Kyler Yamamoto or who right, knows Yamamoto, what's going on with yeah. Pool Party. You know, like those guys still have potential to actually uh, be pretty good um, or be on the top six. So, yeah, no, that is, that is a good point. I I hadn't heard a lot of those prospects that you mentioned, though. So, um, I don't know. Maybe that's that's me or not. I don't know. Um, yeah, so let's uh, let's go to the... Um, Los Angeles Kings here. Uh, they, uh, they again, um, I think we're going around, I think the rest of these, oh, I guess Vancouver made a lot of moves, but LA, San Jose, and Vegas didn't really do much of the offseason um, other than sign some players, but LA, uh, they added, they signed Ben Hutton, um, I forget, I think it was a couple weeks ago. Um, yeah. They cut uh, Dion Phaneuf. I don't think he's on a team at the moment, but no, he is not. Uh, but he, um, but he's not going to be on the LA Kings. Um, in fact, I think it's impossible for him to be on there. There's some, I think, I think, maybe I don't know. Um, anyways, they added Ben Hutton. Uh, they get rid of Dion Phaneuf. But this year is basically kind of like Anaheim. It's it's kind of like stuff that they should have been doing a while ago, but they're starting to do right now where they're rebuilding and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be a perennial, um, lottery team, not perennial. They could end up having like, like they'll be in the running for Alexis Lafreniere, but even still, they have some decent players in their lineup. They have Anze Kopitar, of course, Ilya Kovalchuk had, a, had his moments at, at his time. Uh, Jeff, same with Jeff Carter, um, Drew Doughty, uh, Jonathan Quick. You can never doubt Jonathan Quick or Drew Doughty. Um, <laughs> you can, I almost said you can never doubt D Drew D Doughty. Um, but, um, but like, uh, what I mean is, never, is you, hashtag never in Doughty. Yeah, never in Doughty. Um, so like, uh, my point being is, is that you can't really count guy like a team that does have Drew Doughty or Jonathan Quick because we've we've seen what they are capable of doing um and same with Andre Kopitar Dustin Brown um was pretty good like had an underrated pretty good season um as well um but um at the same time it's like their prospect pool um is not great um and I mean they did end up drafting Alex Turcotte um, and they got, um, what's his face, Arthur Kaliev in this year's draft. But those guys aren't going to be on the lineup right away, nor should they. Um, they do have, uh, they, do, they did bring over Nikolai Prokorkin, um, who is from the KHL. Um, so he's, he's not as well known as uh, Nikita Gusev, but it looks like he's going to be a part of their lineup. Um, but maybe he'll he'll be something. But um, yeah, I don't have high hopes for this LA team. Um, but at the same time, as I just mentioned, it's hard to like doubt this team or count them out 
when you have guys like Jonathan Quick and Andre Kopitar and Drew Doughty. So, but I do, having said all that, I do have them in last. Um, I have them in eight. Yeah, we, I feel like we were talking a lot about the LA Kings in the same aura as the Chicago Blackhawks. You can never count them out with guys like Jonathan Davis yep. and Pat, Patrick Gain. And good you know comparison. what? You know what? They're, the team itself, age caught up with them, and no matter how good Jonathan Taves was, no matter how good Patrick Kane was, the Hawks just couldn't get into the playoffs last year, and it was the same with the Kings, and the Kings are in a worse spot because unlike Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane, they can't score. Right. They can't do anything. Um, Anze Kopitar had an MVP caliber season in 2017-18, he regressed. Doughty slightly regressed. Kovalchuk lit it up in the KHL. They thought at the age of 35, he'd still fit into an NHL lineup. He can get back to his old tricks, and he wasn't even close to average. And he wasn't always seeing eye-to-eye -eye with the coaching staff. You would hope that he at least sees eye-to-eye with uh, Todd McClellan this year. Um, I... Honestly, LA's offense was worse than Edmonton's because at least with the Oilers, you had Nugent and Hopkins, McDavid, uh, even depth uh, goal scoring from Alex Chase on the Kings offense as a whole was rough everywhere, not just on the edges. It was rough everywhere. The leading scorer for that team was Kopitar, despite his down year, he, he had 60 points, which is great, but not great for his standards though and not great for this team's standards either and at fourth on the roster there was Toffoli and Kovalchuk with 34 points apiece and a big part of the reason why was much like Anaheim they just struggled to generate shots on goal they averaged the second fewest per game that's part of the reason why their power play was fifth worst in the league um and they were also in the bottom 10 in terms of time spent on the power play last year. And a big part of the reason for that is because they're getting slower. They weren't as fast. Speed was a very big factor for the Kings in the past. And it's a big reason why they were such a letdown last year. And now heading into this year, they don't have Jake Muzzin because they traded him mid-season to Toronto last year. They bought up enough, as you mentioned. So their defense doesn't look as strong, and it wasn't that strong to begin with as we got into the season last year. Honestly, even if Jonathan Quick is healthy and he gets 30 wins, it's likely not good enough for this LA Kings squad to make the playoffs. Because like I said, the core is aging. They're not as fast. And when you're not as fast, you can't keep up with the play. You can't force the other team to make mistakes. They had the least amount of takeaways last year, which adds to my, uh, which adds a bit of, um, it adds a bit of meat to my opinion there. Um, I, I don't think that they are going to be one of the worst that we have ever seen. They've still got a fair bit of talent. They still have Derek Forbert on the left side. Ben Hutton, I think, is going to be a decent second pairing defenseman for them. Um, Outside of Dowdy and Martinez on the right side, though, the depth on the right side isn't great. Um, 
how they're going to work things out on the wings is also going to be problematic because you have a young guy like Carl Grundstrom with a lot of potential, but a guy that hasn't really played a lot of NHL hockey. So if they slot him into left wing, where do they put him? Um, is a guy like Jeff Carter going to fill a bottom six role, or is he going to have a top six role? Um, how are you going to utilize Ilya Kovalchuk into the lineup on the wing? What about Alex Ayafalo with a bit of potential in the top six? And like you said, guys like Alex Turcotte, guys like Archer Kaliev, they're not going to save you right now. So, you know what? When you say they're the dead last team in the Atlanta, in the Pacific Division, Brett, you're right. They are going to be dead last. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, players to watch. I think this is you. Yeah, you, you. Who's your player to watch? Well, uh, you know I have a soft spot for former Ottawa 67s, but uh, I'm going to mention this guy because um, they're going to need this guy to be their best player, not just Kopitar, but outside of Kopitar, they need Tyler Toffoli to really, really bring That's it. Good one. Um, he had 13 goals and 34 points in 82 games last year. Led the team in shots. He actually got over 100. He finished with 226 on the season. Yep. Nobody else on the Kings recorded 200 last year. Uh, the year before that, he had 24 goals uh, and recorded 251 shots. Um, so that was the year before last and did so while averaging a lower ice time average per game. Um, I think Anse Kopitar's regression affected Toffoli to an extent, but even then Toffoli didn't really spend all that much time with him during the past two seasons anyway, and he was still generating a lot of shots on goal. So for Tyler Toffoli to really kill it this year, he needs to keep generating scoring chances, and he's got to bury, because if he keeps shooting blanks, going to be more problems for the Kings offense. Yeah, by the way, I, I noticed that, and I feel like a lot of people have been talking about it, or people I've, I follow. He has 13 goals. Um, he had 13 goals last year. So his shooting percentage is at, was 5%. And usually NHL players, their shooting percentage is around like 8 to like 12 um, or 15. Um, 5% is like like absurdly low and that just shows you that it's like he's just getting very unlike un unlucky there um so it's like the idea is like the more you shoot the more you could get in but like when we talk about like i talked about oscar clefbaum last you know for uh, edmonton like you know he shoots a lot too and hardly ever scores 13 like five percent shooting percentages uh pretty pretty crazy uh so it, it, like if you believe in the advanced stats it, it kind of shows that well he's he's due for a lot of goals uh coming up but yeah that tyler toffoli is a good um a good pick there for a player to watch um all right let's go to san jose here um they didn't really add anyone. Um, I think that had more to do with the fact that they had a, a bit of a cap situation um, to figure out. They had to resign um, Eric Carlson. Um, they had uh, to think about what they were going to do with Joe Pavelski, Joe Thornton. Um, I think there was a couple of other players who had um, 
who were re-signed. Otima Meyer was an RFA. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of other ones I'm blanking on, but LeBlanc. LeBlanc was another one, yeah. Although LeBlanc did uh, ended up doing them a lot of favors, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so that in turn, even still, um, that in turn made them um, one of those teams that they couldn't really do anything um, this off season. I mean, at the same time, it's like they signed, they they made all their big moves last year, so it's hard to really blame them because they, you know, they added Evander Kane, they added Eric Carlson last year, um, and now they, you know, they're kind of locked in with all their um, contracts. So, so there we go. Um, in terms of San Jose, though, um, they're they're legitimately one of the better the best teams in the league um in terms of like their top six um even there you know they have like the two best defensemen two of the top five defensemen in the league um in their pairings so when eric carlson um is off the ice you still you have to deal with brent burns and vice versa so um that's what makes them legitimately scary it took a while for Eric Carlson to get accustomed to San Jose's style of play, to be honest. But once he, I think he started to figure it out towards the end. Um, he did. He was injured for part of it, so that's going to be what it hinges on: is how good Eric Carlson will be and how healthy will he be. But when healthy, he is one of the best defensemen in the league, and that's already on top of the fact that you have Brent Burns, where it's like. You could argue that Brent Burns may be even better than Eric Carlson, so that's where it gets a little tricky. Um, where it gets very scary for them. Um, they also have Mark Edward Vlasic, who's one of the most underrated defensemen um, in the league. But that's the defenseman core is really their biggest strength, just because of those two guys. And and if you add Vlasic as well, it's um, it's a, a terrifying crew uh, to deal with. Um, as you know, I've, it's kind of been a running joke with us now. Um, I do not think Martin Jones is a good goalie. Um, and he kind of proved it last year because even with Eric Carlson, even with Brent Burns, even with Timo Meyer, who had a breakout year, uh, uh, Thomas Hurdle, who had a breakout year, um, same with Logan Couture, uh, Kevin LeBlanc had a great year as well. It's like, you know, he still had a below 900 save percentage um, in, uh, let's see here, in 62 games. Um, he had an 896 save percentage um, and a GA of 2.94. That's a crazy, especially for, like, it, it would be understandable if, it, if he was on, like, Ottawa, for instance, or, um, I don't know, Detroit or something, but... If he, he's on a good team, we know he's on a good team. And despite that, the Sharks still made it to the playoffs. They still are one of the best teams in the league. Um, but Martin Jones and what they're going to do in goal is legitimately probably the, the biggest weakness for the San Jose by far. And if the, it's, it's kind of like a blue situation. Once they fit, like if Martin Jones figures it out, um, fine. Um, but if Martin Jones figures it out, then great. Um, or they need to find another goaltender who can, uh, 
you know, who can be as healthy as um, even just average, uh, they they may end up winning the Stanley Cup um, if they just get decent goaltending. Um, and for that, I'm not sure if they will, but I still have them making the playoffs because of all those guys I just mentioned, especially Carlson and Burns. So I have them going second um, in this division. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, they do lose a fair bit of leadership uh, with Joe Pavelski being gone. They lose a few depth guys on defense, which it'll be interesting to see how they work with the, the bottom three defense, and that's probably going to be a concern because um, – they're probably going to be fairly new to their roles. Um, they don't have Dylan DeMello anymore, even because um, he went to Ottawa in the Carlson trade. So um, that's another depth piece that they don't have. The one thing they do have going for them moving forward is the prospects. They have Sasha Chemlevsky, former 67. They also have uh, Ryan Merkley, who needs to work on his two-way game, but offensively there's upside with that kid. Um, they also have guys like Noah Gregor. By the way, Alex a little Sturm. bit of a sidetrack here. I know we can't really afford to get sidetracked, but isn't there something where Ryan Merkley uh, like is getting kicked off of his like OHL team? Sorry, he's having some issue with his OHL team. Uh, yeah, so uh, funny you should mention that. Um, I guess it was at the trade deadline last year that Peterborough Peets... Um, acquired his services and i i'm not quite sure what the story is on ryan merkley but two-way game is his biggest weakness there okay it's the biggest improvement for him and maybe peterborough just didn't want to deal with it anymore and they're just like you know it's someone else's problem now uh or maybe there was another reason uh, entirely i haven't read too much into it all i know is that um oh they traded him to uh the london knights i just looked it up exactly because the london knights get their guy and they always find a way to make up for the talent they lose every off season okay anyways back to the sharks Literally, as soon as I saw the teams that were interested and I saw London, Sam just like, you might as well just announce yeah. the trade now. He's going to London. Right, London right. always gets their guy every time. Okay, anyways, so, back to your, uh, back to the Sharks. Let's, uh, let's get back on track. Yeah, so um, guys like Ryan Merkley, guys like Sasha Chomilevsky, Alex True, Noah Gregor, um, they have some other ones. Jacob Milton, who is also a former 67. Of course. Um, they, they have a lot of depth with their prospect pool. So whatever guys they lose moving forward, in theory, they should be able to replace with some of the guys they have in their prospect pool already. Um, outside of losing depth and leadership with Pavelski, with Nyquist, with Donskoy, with Justin Braun, um, the Sharks are still a pretty good team because you have a guy like Evander Kane who can both agitate, provide grit, and score goals. Um, nine guys on the team scored at least 15 goals last year. Um, the Sharks had three other players, not named Joe Pavelski, who scored 30-plus goals, and Timo Meyer is one of them. Um, Brent Burns hit 80 points last year, and he also got at least 15 goals. 
Um, there were eight other guys that posted 50 plus points. Um, nine guys on the team, including Brent Burns, had at least 10 power play points. Uh, 12 guys posted 100 shots at least, and one of them didn't even average 13 minutes per game. So the Sharks have a lot of offense. They have a lot of depth. They really spread the wealth around uh, fairly well. And just as a team, they're very well-rounded. Top five in takeaways, top 10 in power play success, top 10 in average shots per game, top three in fewest shots allowed per game as well. And a lot of that group has committed this offseason. Like you said, Timo Meyer, Eric Carlson, Kevin LeBanc taking a pay cut, Jumbo Joe staying on board. Um, and they also have a very strong group of leaders. Couture being the new team captain, um, Carlson being the captain of the sense before he's an assistant, uh, Brent Burns, Thomas Hurdle, um, also being named assistants, they have a strong leadership group. And it should be noted that Hurdle and Couture played a big role in that game seven comeback against Vegas after Pavelski gets hurt and right. controversial five minute power play is awarded to the San Jose Sharks. Couture gets the first goal. Then Carlson fires a shot that's tipped in by Hurdle. Couture scores again to even the score. Those three guys that I just mentioned that were involved in that comeback have leadership roles on the team this year. And a lot of those guys remember that game. They were a part of that game. And they're eager to build on the character that they have. And Jumbo Joe was the guy that kickstarted things on the bench. He says... Before they go on the power play, he says, we got to score three goals here. And everyone just really fed off of that. And I really get the sense that this group wants to win a cup together. And they're in it for the long haul. They want to win for each other. They got Bob Bugner back in the fold behind the bench as an assistant coach. So that helps out a bit more character. Um, like you said, goaltending is going to be their biggest concern, uh, the, especially the fact that they surrendered – I think the second or third fewest shots against per game in the league. And they were still near the top 10 for most goals allowed. Like explain to me how that's possible. Um, the good news is Martin Jones at points in the playoffs from games five to seven against Vegas um, in the Colorado series in round two, he looked more like the Martin Jones I was expecting. And it's not the one you're used to seeing. This is the good version of Martin Jones. Um, it would also be nice if Aaron Dell plays better because if you look at his stats last yeah. year, he wasn't better than Martin Jones. He had a GAA over three. Uh, State percentage was just as mediocre, and he was 10, 8, and 4 on the year. So when it really matters in the playoffs, their goaltending has to be huge. Um, and I guess as a team, they could get by with average goaltending. But you know what? I'm not expecting an average Sharks team. I'm expecting a Pacific Division winning San Jose Sharks team. And I think Martin Jones, bold prediction of the year, he's going to be a top 10 goalie by the end of the year. Wow. All right. I guess this is going to be our thing now where I'm going to be 
uh, being the the anti. I'm gonna be the Michael Felger uh, version of Martin Jones, or you know the, the like what Michael Felger thinks of Tuka Rask. I'm gonna think of Martin Jones, <laughs> and then you'll be us when we're like, oh no, he's actually a good goalie or whatever. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I could see Martin Jones being a legitimate goalie, but I feel like he has. Um, it's going to be tough to see where, um, like, I feel like if they even get good goaltending, then this is a team to be reckoned with. But um, that's that's where this team starts to come apart. Um, also, I forgot to mention, I mean, you did mention it too, but uh, Joe Pavelski is no longer on the team. Uh, Justin Braun as well, and Jonas Donskoy yep. are also off the team. Uh, but the big and Gustav Nyquist. And Gustav Nyquist is another one, yeah. Uh, so all all four of those guys. I mean, obviously Pavelski was their captain, and Nyquist Nyquist had his moments in the playoffs, but um, and, and Justin Braun's pretty good too in, in in terms of defensive stuff, and same with Donskoy. But it feels like they still have enough players. Timo Meyer kind of broke out. Kevin LeBlanc was amazing. Uh, you know, Logan Couture, Thomas Hurdle. And Evander Kane are good. Uh, so my, it's kind of tough. To, I guess you would say the Sharks' best player is Brent Burns. Um, the thing is, is that, so the player I'm going to watch is actually my personal favorite Sharks player, mostly because I have him on a couple of my fantasy teams. Um, and um, he kind of like, I, I remember I talked about him a bit last year when we were doing those power rankings and I was explaining to him like to you like how like I can't believe people aren't talking about him and it turns out he uh this guy I mean I, I think now you know who I'm talking about but turns out this guy um had the best uh point had the most points out of any forwards on the sharks he didn't have more than Brent Burns the guy of course I'm talking about is Hurdle Thomas Hurdle, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Hurdle, um, he had he ended up having 74 points in 77 games. Um, I mean, sure, there is something to the fact that he had you know 176 shots on on net, um, and he uh, and all that stuff. But at the same time, he kind of took over for that center role, and you know most centers don't have to be. Um, you know, shooting the puck that often. They just need to assist and all that stuff. But it's going to become important because of the fact that Joe Pavelski is no longer on the team. And there goes, you know, it's, it's you're going to have to wonder about who's going to take over Joe Pavelski's role. And it's going to be pretty simple because, you know, of course you have Logan Couture. But then you also have a guy like Thomas Hurdle who, uh, who kind of broke out this year. Um, and I'm kind of curious, I mean, I guess there are definitely some underlying numbers where you, you don't think he'll be able to sustain it, uh, sustain what he's been able to do. But at the same time, it's like he's only 25 years old. Um, this is the first time that this, like, this was the highest point totals that he's had in his entire career. But he's still like, you know, he, he hits, he still, you know, he sometimes blocks some shots. He's on the power play. He's gonna be, you know, he's gonna be given a lot of opportunity um, here, 
and I, I, I feel like he's only gonna, he's only scratched the surface of how good he can really be. Um, of course, he's most known for, um, in his rookie year, his first game, he had four goals in a game, and it, and it uh, had that, uh, Joe Thornton had that amazing quote about um, what he would do if he scored four goals, but, like, you know, instead, like, he kind of, he kind of, like, took a downturn after that season, um, and then I feel like now he's finally figuring it out, and um, I'm excited to see, like, it's, it, I guess there is a chance that he could regress a bit, but it feels like he's, like, last year was when he really figured things out, and he was, a, like, a life force for San Jose, and he's, um, he could be a big part of the, Shark, the Sharks team if they want to go far in the playoffs, even in the regular season. But um, I, I just love this guy, and I feel like people should be talking about him more. Although I guess, on the other hand, I do understand why people are a little bit more hesitant of talking about Thomas Hurdle. Um, but um, still, I feel like he, he's, he's going to be a superstar pretty soon. I was convinced that uh, Joe Thornton would oh, win, Thornton, yeah. but um, yeah, I, so, I was convinced you are going to pick Joe Thornton. But yeah, uh, Thomas Earl's a good bet too. Yeah, well, so a little bit of behind the scenes, um, we, we email each other every week. It's like hundred plus every week, um, and um, and when we were deciding on what, who, which team we were going to do our player to watch on, um, I I mentioned how it's gonna, I had trouble figuring out the Arizona thing, and I was saying like you could probably guess who. I was going to pick on San Jose because I did mention him a couple times last year. But Joe Thornton, yeah, I guess now that I think about it, I I can see why you think Joe Thornton because he is a former Boston Bruin. But um, and I did do like a kind of like a little expose history lesson on him one of these episodes before. But uh, no, no, I I I love Thomas Hurdle. He's one of my favorite players now. Um, purely because of fantasy hockey, I should mention. Um, I uh, I wonder if this is finally going to be the year where Joe Thornton scores four goals in a game. That's possible. He almost did it against my Boston Bruins, too. Yeah, he almost did. Yep. Um, I also wanted to shout out Timo Meyer and Kevin LeBlanc. Those guys are also pretty good players, too. But they're yep. going to be, like, they're going to have to also have breakout years, like, they, or to sustain that as well. Uh, with yeah. Timo, uh, Thomas Hurdle on with that. If, if all four, three of those guys um, aren't as good as they were last year, then I feel like that's where the Sharks are in disaster mode. Then like, yeah, where they could regress a bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably. Um, also, I feel like Vander Kane um, regressed a bit last year, and he probably needs to be play better than what he was paid. Um, so there, there's that situation as well, but um, I don't think it will come to that. We'll see. Um, anyways, let's go to Vi uh, Vancouver. I almost said Vegas. Um, Vancouver. Um, they're another team that had a bit of a, a lot of injuries, um, but they also had um, I don't know a revelation um, in Elias Peterson um, or Peterson, I guess is his name. Um, where he was, he's, 
you know, in a weird way, I hate to compare him to McDavid, but he is kind of like McDavid in the fact that uh, when he's on the ice, he's like their best player. When he's off the ice, like Vancouver, um, like when he's on the ice and on his game, uh, Vancouver is a perennial playoff team, dark horse playoff team. When he's injured and out of the lineup, um, it's like Vancouver is probably like not that good. Um, he makes the team, which is even more impressive considering the fact that A, he's 20 years old, and B, this last year was his rookie year. He ended up winning the Calder Trophy. Um, he ended up with 66 points in 71 games. Um, and I believe there's like, I think he lost, like, all the games that he missed, like, Canucks only won, like, one of those games or something like that. I'm sure maybe you have the statistics for that. I don't know. Um, you also have Bo Horvat, Brock Besser, who are also good players, of course. Um, I'm also interested in the fact that Quinn Hughes is supposedly supposed to be playing kind of like, he's kind of like, he has a similar hype to what um, Kale McCarr has, what uh, Miro Heiskanen had last year. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see how he fits into this team um, because he's going to be a big part of their future as well. Um, Vancouver made a lot of moves in the offseason. Uh, they added Michael Furland. Uh, they added Tyler Myers, and they also added JT Miller. Um, they didn't really lose that many players. I guess the only one is Ben Hudden of note. Um, but, um, and, uh, and also, like, Jacob Markstrom had a low-key, pretty amazing season. Um, in 60 games, he went 28-23-9. Um, his save percentage was 9-12. Um, I guess not a low-key amazing, but pretty good considering this is like Vancouver we're talking about. Their defense isn't great. Um, and 2.77, but uh, Markstrom's pretty good. I like I love their, their goaltending situation. Thatcher Demko played a bit as well. Same with Michael DiPietro, who's your favorite goalie of all time. <laughs> um, but uh, Thatcher Demko will probably take a little bit more of a step this year as well. So they, they're adding Quinn Hughes, they're adding Thatcher Demko, um, and then that's on top of the fact of uh, Besser, Pedersen, um, and um, Horvat. Um, you know, pretty soon, I, I don't think it's going to be this season, but I, I feel like um, with the moves that they made, with getting JT Miller, getting, um, getting Tyler Myers, they're, they're, they could sneaky make the playoffs, just sneak in and make the playoffs there. But at the moment, I have them fifth in the division. Um, but I could see them, like, if they get their stuff together, um, they could be a fun team to watch um, and look at for. Yeah, the, the Canucks are a very intriguing team with the additions they made, uh, getting guys like Mikhail Kirkland on board, getting guys like JT Miller on board, although I still don't know why they gave up a first-round pick that could turn yep. into a top-ten pick. That's true. That's good. That might be tough. But <laughs> nevertheless, they get a top-six forward in JT Miller, yep. which is pretty interesting. And they definitely need offensive depth because if you look at their numbers from last year, they had depth, but they didn't have any depth that 
really made you jump out of your seat. There were 12 players on the Canucks roster last year who recorded at least 100 shots. Uh, some of their forwards on the lower section of that list didn't even average 15 minutes per game, which is, yeah, you know, I'd say pretty decent, but one of those guys was named Louis Erickson, and you're paying him over $6 million per year. Um, the issue is only Besser and Horvat recorded over 200 shots, and Vertanen was third on the team with 154 shots. The fourth and fifth leading scorers on the Canucks failed to reach 40 points, and those two guys were Alex Edler, who had uh, 34 points, and Antoine Roussel, who had nine goals and 31 points. Antoine Roussel is yeah. a top five scorer with 31 points. That is not great. Even if scores six through 11 have 20 to 29 points each, that's still not great. I will say that the Canucks did have unfortunate injury luck as well. Sven Berchi mm. uh, recorded 14 points, but played in just 26 games. Edler played in 56. Um, Tanner Pearson had his moments after the trade from Pittsburgh, but he wasn't around the entire season because, again, he only was there for March and April. Um, the results overall showed for the Vancouver Canucks, and they weren't necessarily positive. They spent the seventh most time on the power play, still ranked in the NHL's basement in the bottom 10. Um, in average shots per game, surprise, surprise, they were a bottom 10 team as well, um, largely because they couldn't execute. Even strength power play, they couldn't execute, period. And if you're not shooting enough, odds are you're not getting the puck to go in the net. And um, that often leads to more pressure for your defense. That leads to more pressure for their penalty kill. And the penalty kill was fine as far as rankings go, but they spent a fair amount of time in the sin bin. Um, and when you do that, that can distract you from playing your game and scoring goals. And the good teams know what their game plan is and they're able to execute it. And a good step to executing your game plan is don't play from behind. Right. And Vancouver Canucks only scored first in 33 of 82 games. In 30 of the games, which they had a lead after 20 minutes, they hung on to one, just half of them, 15, which, again, isn't overly great. Um, and, you know, even if you get a lead, it's just playing and keeping with the lead. That's a challenge. So that's part of the reason why the Canucks decided to go for more depth. And they did on offense and defense. Like you mentioned, Tyler Myers brought in to be a top four defender, uh, possibly be a top pairing defenseman. Um, thankfully, Alex Sedler is there to help him along. Um, you also have Chris Tanev, Troy Stetcher that provide uh, depth uh, in the second and third pairings. Uh, Jordy Ben helps in that regard too. Oscar Fantenberg, same thing. But when I look at their defense and say, you know what, they've really improved. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that at all. And are they even improving their uh, both sides of their wing by bringing in Mikhail Ferlin and JT Miller? Again, I don't know. Um, I would say Miller definitely makes the right side look better because it's him and Brock Besser 
on the top six is righties. So there's your top line right winger, your second line right winger. It's all sorted out. Um, then you have Vertanen and Brandon Sutter sliding in as the third and fourth line guys. Um, if you look at the left side, I wouldn't call it a surefire thing um, because the top line left winger could be Tanner Pearson or it could be Mikhail Furland or it could be Sven Verci. Um, it's really tough to call. And then you look at down the middle outside of Horvat and Peterson, it's pretty much Adam Godet and Jay Beagle. Um, which again, you know, is, is decent, but it provides more questions as to whether or not this team is playoff ready. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what their offense does or what their defense does. It's all going to come back to how good Jakob Markstrom is, how good Thatcher Demko is. And if you look at Jakob Markstrom, he was the main reason why the Canucks even had a shot at making the playoffs last year. He faced almost 1,900 shots, like you said, started 60 of 82 games. He had a 920 save percentage over a stretch of 23 games from February 1st to the last day of the regular season. Guess what his record was? What? 9, 10, and 4. Wow. And he had a 920 save percentage. Yeah. Still below 500 record. I just think the division is too good for the Canucks to do much of anything this year. I think if you see some improvements, maybe some meaningful hockey games in March, that's a victory. But I think that's where my expectations end for this hockey club. I think they're going to be fifth place in the Pacific, but getting into the playoffs, that's going to be tough, man. I, I don't know if it's going to happen for them. Well, yeah, I want to clarify. I never said, like, they'd make the playoffs, but I could see it, like, happening, maybe. Um, we'll see. Yeah, the only way they get in the playoffs is through the wild card. That's the only way they get True. it. True, yeah. Uh, who's your player to watch? Um, I was going to be a cop-out and say Bo Horvat because I hear a lot of the, the pundits in Vancouver saying he looks like team captain material and Will yeah. Horvat said himself that he feels like he's ready to handle that type of a role right um but if the Canucks want to do well the guys outside of Bo Horvat Brock Besser and Elias Peterson have to bring it so I'm gonna go with Tanner Pearson okay. um in the short time he played with the Canucks he showed a lot of good signs he had nine goals and 12 points in 19 games um we're talking about a guy that did plenty of scoring in his OHL days um, he's become a fringe top six, bottom six guy in the NHL with the Kings. Uh, last year, kind of got off to a rough start. Got dealt to Pittsburgh as a result, then got traded again uh, in the Erica Branson trade. Um, and not being able to cash in with all that Penguins talent around you can be a shock to one's confidence. But for Tanner Pearson, it didn't appear to be the case. I mean... Nine of those goals that he scored came on just 42 shots. So his shooting percentage was over 20, 21.4% to be precise. Um, he averaged 16 to 17 minutes per night in Vancouver. On that left side where it's wide open, he could easily emerge as a top six winger and maybe even emerge as their left winger on the top line and maybe a very good one at that. 
but if the Vancouver Canucks want to do much of anything, um, Tanner Pearson's got to have a good year. Yeah, that's a good pick. Um, also, shout out to Adam Gaudet, who's from Massachusetts, who went to Northeastern. Um, I wanted to. I, I probably wouldn't have picked him if if I was if I if I had Vancouver, but I do want to shout him out. Um, yeah. Hope he has a good year. Um, all right, let's go to our final team. Here is the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, they are an interesting team. Um, I mean, last year or you know the year before that, uh, you know in their expansion year, they they ended up going to the Stanley Cup final, um, and then uh, they ended up losing that. Uh, but they still made history nonetheless. Um, and then this year they ended up, you know, getting Paul Stasny, who misses a couple, uh, a couple of games. Uh, they got Max Pacioretty. Um, but their big move uh, that kind of put them over the top was getting Mark Stone in the trade deadline. Um, and once Mark Stone joined the fray, um, he had 11 points in 18 games. You know, Vegas was a completely different team. Um, and they, um, you know, and now they have a pretty good top six. Uh, William Carlson kind of uh, stepped down a bit. Um, and Riley and Riley Smith um, kind of struggled at the beginning of the season. But you have Jonathan Marcheseau, William Carlson, Riley Smith as your top, maybe your top line. You have Paul Stasny, Mark Stone, and Max Pacioretty. We're all guys you get off of other teams. I mean, I guess everyone is off of other teams, but you got those guys. That's a pretty good top six, um, and um, and pretty and like and you add on to the fact that they you mentioned this when you're talking about San Jose. You know, they almost beat San Jose in the first round um, if it wasn't for that bad call uh, that the refs had, and they could have went on a run. They almost like they they started scoring, but then. They gave up a lead and and all that stuff, and they gave up one of the worst leads of all time. It's like, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like you aren't truly a hockey team until you go through a tremendous amount of loss like that. So um, it's it kind of felt like, oh, this is like, so now I'm kind of curious to see how they come back from that. Um, during the offseason, it's kind of like they're, since they did get Mark Stone in that trade deadline, they didn't really. They couldn't really afford to assign anyone or even trade for anyone, but they did. Um, they did uh, trade away uh, Colin Miller, or my my favorite nickname, uh, Chiller, um, and they also traded away Eric Halla as well uh, to Carolina. They didn't really get anyone back, but I think it was more just to st stay under the cap. Um, I mean, they did trade away, uh, what's-his-face, David Clarkson, um, and got Garrett Sparks, but it looks like Garrett Sparks is cut from Vegas, so it doesn't even look like he's there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, um, I guess there are some question marks for sure of this team. Um, Marc-Andre Fleury, um, he plays way too many games for a, play, uh, a goalie of his nature right now, his... He's like 36 years old, um, and he's he played 61 games last year. It's kind of like, if you have a guy like Malcolm Subban, I know he's been inconsistent, but you might as well use Malcolm Subban and give 
a guy like Marc-Andre Fleury some rest, so I wonder if they're going to do that this year. Um, but even still, um, Marc-Andre Fleury had a 2.51 GAA, a save percentage of 9.13, uh, which is decent. Um, and then you traded someone like Colin Miller, who just kind of ran out of favor with Gerard Gallant. Um, but that adds some intrigue for uh, Shea Theodore, Nate Schmidt, um, who will probably get more of, you know, more of the workload um, that uh, Colin Miller left. And then you also have a guy like Nick Haig um, in the system. Uh, I think there's like another guy like, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Um, anyways, he's in the AHL, but they have a couple Cody of guys. Glass. Well, I was thinking of defensemen, but Cody Glass is a good one too. Um, Zach Whitecloud? Zach Whitecloud, I, yeah, he has a cool name, but there's another guy. But whatever, I think it's like it's like a boring name. I'll 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 figure it out uh, eventually. Uh, but uh, anyways, I I feel like their defense, like I feel like this is gonna be the year that Shea Theodore kind of breaks out, um, and and all that stuff, and like they're going to be pretty good so i have them winning the division i i don't i don't i guess you could say maybe mark andre Fleury kind of regresses a bit um as as goalies tend to do of his age but um i feel like getting mark stone for a full year um and just like you know and being hungry um after their playoff loss they're they're going to be one of the better teams in the league and I have them winning the division. Um, do the names of Dylan Coughlin or Jimmy Schultz uh, Yeah, I'll look this up when you're when you're talking. <laughs> Alright. Uh, fun, funny that you mentioned the Vegas Golden Knights now as winners of the division when last year you, sh- you didn't think really That's they'd true. make the playoffs. A lot has so. changed since then. They, A lot has they changed, didn't, yes. When I made that proclamation they did not have uh, Max Pacioretty. Oh no, I, I guess the season premiere. I think it just right? happened. Yeah, yeah. It just had just happened after I made that proclamation. Um, Mark Stone is also a big thing too. Yeah, so Mark Stone entering the full is a big game changer too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the first two years of their existence, um, I find the Vegas Golden Knights have really used speed and skill as a weapon, and they've really mastered it as a matter of fact um they had the ninth fewest giveaways and posted the most takeaways in the nhl last year um that basically translates into forcing teams to make mistakes while limiting the ones that you make and that's not often easy to do and it's possible because they're very very fast they're quick on the four check they're back uh, quick on the back check uh, they don't give the other team all that much time to make plays so when you force the issue when you're forced to make a call that may not be the right one it can cause some problems and vegas really pounces on that and then they take the puck they use their skill and they create scoring chances and they they do it as good as the top tier teams in the league and um I think another reason why the Vegas Golden Knights are so good at forcing the issue is not only are they very fast, but they've got some guys that can really, really hit. And those two guys in particular 
that really drive the boat are William Carrier and Ryan Reeves, and they were amongst the league's best when it comes to hitting anything that moves. Uh, last year, they were really racking up the hits. Uh, Pittsburgh ended up being the only NHL team just past Vegas in uh, total team hits. Um, so again, uh, that probably translated into more scoring chances and more opportunities for Vegas to burn you. Um, they also give up the fifth fewest shots per game and generate the second most in the NHL. So again, generating shots gives you more of a chance to score. Giving up fewer shots limits what the other team can do to you. Imagine if they have a top 10 penalty kill and a top 10 power play on top of that. They did last year, but imagine what they can do if they have both of those things going for them this year. Uh, looking at their offense from a season ago, Brian Carpenter is no longer there, but he played fairly well. Um, there were 13 other players uh, not named Brian Carpenter to register at least 100 shots. Um, Cody Eakin is one of them. He got 22 goals on 120 shots. Uh, you mentioned William Carlson having a bit of a down year. I agree he wasn't as explosive as his first campaign with Vegas when he got 40-plus goals, but still got 169 shots, still got 24 goals. That's so still relatively decent. Um, Alex Cuck, I really liked what he brought to the table as a top six piece last year. He had 180 shots, 20 goals, and 52 points of his own. Um, Max Pacioretty, Shea Theodore, both of them finished in the top three for shots generated. Uh, Shea Theodore had 279 games, as a matter of fact. And in the playoffs, Max Pacioretty was really, really, really firing the puck. And the big reason for that was because he was making a lot of chemistry with Paul Stastny and Mark Stone. And how they utilize that line moving forward is also going to be interesting. I also think you mentioned the controversial game seven. I also think that's going to fuel their future success because up until the 2018 finals, Vegas never really tasted heartbreak. And I guess heartbreak, losing the Stanley Cup finals, that counts. But your season ends the same as your opponent in that scenario. Right. Like, there's, there's, there's no one playing hockey after you. After that series, hockey's over for a couple of months. But you have a three-goal lead against... San Jose, I can't remember if it was game two or three. I think it was game two that Vegas had a three to nothing lead. I think it was in the first period. And Vegas blew that lead. And they ended up winning that game. They ended up winning three straight. And they were up three to one in the series. And they had a chance to close out San Jose in the Shark Tank in game five. Didn't do it. They had a chance to do it in game six, peppering Martin Jones with shots in extra overtime frames with the power play, no less. And San Jose somehow scores the winner shorthanded in double, triple overtime. I can't remember, but it was well beyond the first overtime. And then in game seven, like we all know so very well, that five minute major gets called. San Jose scores four goals on that five-minute power play and a three-nothing lead goes away like that. 
with 10 minutes to go. Vegas didn't have to squander their opportunity in game seven. They could have finished the job in game five and game six, and they didn't do it. San Jose hung around. They allowed them to hang around. They didn't finish the job in the prior two games, and it came back to bite them. And I agree that the call is controversial as it was cost them, but missing out on closing out the series in games five and six cost them just as much as that collapsed three-goal lead in game seven. And getting knocked out like that in round one in late April, it's doing about it for a few months, I'm sure motivated a lot of guys in that locker room and there were a lot of highlights that I saw in their first preseason, preseason game against Arizona this year where they looked like a hungry bunch of hockey players and they looked super, super motivated. And the level of tenacity, the pace that they played with was solid for a first preseason game. Uh, Max Pacioretty got a hat trick in that game against Arizona as well. He really liked the way his team brought it in that game. Uh, overall in the preseason they've been they've been pretty good um he's also really liked what he's seen from cody glass max Pacioretty couldn't stop talking about cody glass after the first preseason game he he thought that he really came a long ways even even uh in the pre previous training camp uh, when he looked pretty good um he, he really seemed to like what um cody glass brought to the table even with losing death guys like Belmare and Carpenter and Gusev and Colin Miller and Eric Halla, the Vegas Golden Knights are going to have Mark Stone for a full season. They still have Schmidt and Theodore on the back end. They still have Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been playing some of his best hockey in recent memory. They still have a pretty good prospect pool. Um, they also managed to keep Thomas Nosek, Brandon Peary, Derek Englund. So some of the depth guys they did manage to bring back this year and um i think some of them are going to have uh, more opportunities to excel with the organization now that guys like um, paula and miller and gustav aren't on the team yep. so um i don't think they're going to win the division but i think they're going to have enough fuel to finish second in the pacific division and i definitely could see them winning the division but uh, they need to really watch flurry's workload because he's 34 now he's not entering his early 30s the last time he played in over 60 games was in 2014-15 and he was a couple of years younger at that point and He's only going to get older from here, so they need, whether it's Subban, whether it's Sparks, yep. uh, whether they need to get somebody out of retirement, whoever their backup is, their backup needs to lighten the workload for Flurry because if they get a tough draw in round one and they overuse Flurry, it could be another short exit. So they really need to play uh, that situation well and they need to monitor Flurry's workload big time. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the player I was thinking of is Dylan Coughlin. Okay, there you go. Um, yeah, I don't by the way, I was looking at his stats in the AHL. He had 40 points in 66 yep. games for a defenseman. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, 
right. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good assessment of them. Uh, my player to watch um, is, I mean, I talked about him a little bit in my my spiel, um, but I'm gonna go with Shea Theodore because I feel like because uh, um, I think there there is something to the fact that uh, Colin Colin Miller is no longer on the team, um, and. Nate Schmidt, he's not really he he did have a lot of points as a defenseman, but uh, he didn't like he's not really a, uh, an offensive defenseman. And Shea Theodore, um, is like is destined to be that power play person. He's he should be able to make, take that next step. Um, he was on the Anaheim Ducks a couple of years before Vegas even existed. Um, and he was actually pretty decent, but it seemed like he was always back in the AHL and he killed it in the AHL. And then when he came up to the NHL, um, he always was getting like three li third line minutes or, or third pairing minutes. And, um, but he was still like putting up points in Anaheim. Um, anyways, now that he's on Vegas, um, and he's going to be reliant on being that guy, um, this is going to be his first real test to see how he does as being that the defenseman that um that you know the play the forwards are gonna look at to con you know to drive play and and be that power play quarterback um although i guess he was partly doing that um last year um however he only had 37 points in 79 games so that's a little disappointing um but he still um you know, he still showed that what he was capable of. I, I believe I'm going to look here. I should have done this uh, while you were talking, but uh, I, I hold on. Uh, there, he, in the last, like in February and March, he had 15 points um, in 26 games, um, which is, you know, pretty good. Um, I mean, he didn't really have any points in April, but that those were two games. So, like, the last half, he was, like, he was getting going. Um, and I, I am curious. To, I feel like if he's not what we expect him to be, then um, I feel like Vegas will be in trouble uh, because, you know, playmaking defensemen don't come that often. Um, you know, they don't – It's they're hard to come by. Um, and puck moving defenseman like that. So it's, um, he should be like, I could see him maybe getting 50 points, uh, maybe even 60 points, um, this year. And, um, so I think highly of him, but it's still, um, you know, that's something that like his highest he's ever gotten was 37 points last year. Um, and, uh, he, he should be able to make that next step. And I'm going to be curious to see if he can make that next step right now. Yeah, that's a fair bet. Okay, cool. That's a fair bet. That's a fair bet. Uh, rapid fire here. Uh, we, have, we actually have a lot of stuff to talk about in terms yes, of our rapid fire. Uh, I should note beforehand that um, there are... A lot of RFAs signed, like Line A, uh, Connor, Kyle Connor, and Miko Rantanen, as well as Braden Point. We're going to talk about Braden Point because uh, that was the first one. But, um, but the other three that we're going we're going to talk about them next week 
Um, it, should, it shouldn't be that big of a deal considering that I don't expect there to be too much news, even though hockey yeah. season's going to start um, on thir- on Wednesday. So uh, so you have that. But um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more in depth next week, but I just wanted to get that out of the way first. Um, there was a couple of big news stories or things that happened in the hockey world uh, that should be uh, talked about, though. Um, the first one... Um, Austin Matthews, uh, got arrested. <laughs> what, what, did you say, were you saying something? Uh, well, I would say he got arrested, well, he's facing charges. He's facing charges, yeah. I guess he didn't officially, that's true, he's facing charges. So there's and a, he's in trouble. Yeah, he was in trouble. So, uh, there was an incident, um, that was alleged to have happened at 2 a.m. on May 26th. The security guard, her name is Fayola Dozithi, um, who is in her locked car. Um, so this is two in the morning. She's in her locked car outside of a condo building where Austin Matthews lives. I believe this is in Arizona. Um, and this is in May, by the way. So yeah. um, and this, this will also become important because Kyle Dubas did not even, this was the first that he heard of it this week when when this this story broke out um anyways yeah he found out he found out about this like everyone else did through twitter yep um so i'm gonna actually read an excerpt from twitter actually um I'm, but this seems pretty legit um but uh uh just so that we get get it out there um so uh matthews was uh so she, Fayola was disturbed by the sound of someone trying to open her door. Uh, she jumped out of her vehicle to find out who was trying to get in her car and noticed it was Austin and her friends. Um, she confronted them and the response from Austin was they wanted to see what they would, what she would do and they believed it would be funny to see how she would respond. Fayola found uh, this very disturbing and put her on edge as, as it would for anyone. Uh, Fayola said uh, she told Austin and his friends that she is a female and a military vet with severe PTSD, uh, which makes it even scarier when you think of it like that. Yeah, um, yeah not, not funny at all. And she told, yeah, she said it was not funny at all. Um, and um, it's just scary trying to, you know, it, like, you know, even if, if you leave the female out of, like, if you leave it, the fact that she's a female out of the story, um, it's like, you know, it's still pretty scary. And added on with the female stuff, it's like, you know, it's terrifying. Um, anyways, uh, they think, it, uh, she told them it wasn't funny, and how could they think it would be funny to try and get into a female's vehicle at two in the morning? Uh... She told the police that Matthews and his friends uh, were clearly drunk. Um, she continued to say that Austin would say that he thought it was funny. Um, and Fayola said that she then began to tell them to just leave. Um, as the friend who was speaking to Fayola, she said Austin began to walk away. And after he walked some distance, Austin pulled down his pants, bent over, and grabbed his butt cheeks. She added he was not fully exposed, keeping his underwear up. The police report said a security videotape shows a man walking with his pants around his ankles, but underwear up. So that's, I guess that's supposedly uh, due to Austin Matthews. 
Uh, so as mentioned, uh, this was also like what's strange about this stuff is obviously this is a strange incident. Um, I guess he's just being charged right now. I guess you're right. He's not arrested yet. Um, but um, I guess there there are some charges. Um, but this is like a pretty serious thing. I mean, obviously it's not like murder or, or rape or something like that. But um, just threatening a woman um, and just being disorderly um, is not a good look uh, when uh, when you're Austin Matthews, who's supposed to be like a star in this. I mean, he is a star in this league, um, and. Uh, that's not what you want star players to uh, act. And, um, yeah, and, and this is, uh, it's not great. It's not, I mean, I'll never know how it feels to be a female at night, but I, I just, I still, like, can imagine how scary it would be to, uh, like, be in your car late at night and all of a sudden this, like, huge guy is trying, and a couple of friends are just trying to get into your car um, like, it's just a terrifying thought, and, um, we'll see what happens with it, I'm sure this is an ongoing story, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty scary, and it's, uh, kind of an indictment on NHL's reputation, because this is a star player, um, in a, in a big market, so, um, yeah. It's a star player that also embarrassed the state he represents yep. the state that hasn't really had a hockey player of his caliber sure. make it big like this in the nhl and i know that he's still maturing but he's not a teenager i think austin matthews should probably know better the fact that he didn't tell the organization about this right away when he was sobered up and this is how Kyle Dubas finds out about it, like all of us on Twitter. And he has no idea that this happened. And frankly, it was, it was, a, it was a shock to me because actually Brian Fraser, who's been on this podcast before, is actually one of the first people to kind of get this story out. And there, it showed like this, uh, this court case document or whatever. And it says Matthews, comma Austin Taylor. Taylor spelled T-A-Y-L-O-U-R and I'm just thinking that's probably a different Austin Matthews right. just like it's just like probably like uh, bombarding his Twitter it's just like Austin what did you do and he's just like yeah the wrong Austin Matthews and then and then like hours later I get it we we get an email at, at the news station I work at uh, we get a lot of news emails and one of them was Austin Matthews charged for disorderly conduct and I'm just thinking oh my god that wasn't a different Austin Matthews that was Austin Matthews <laughs> and he's in trouble and this right. is real and this does not look good for him at all and I agree that we have heard athletes in hockey and other sports being criticized for doing something more severe slide <clears throat> board up yep but that doesn't take away from the fact that austin matthews screwed up big time he has to learn from this he needs to own up to it and to austin matthews credit when kyle dubas called him up on the phone and said hey what's going on here i keep hearing uh, these tweets that uh, said he did something back in may and he was fully honest with him then so full credit to matthews he owned up to it then um but 
he messed up on a lot of accounts and i hope this really changes him as a person and i hope he learns from this and however he learns from this uh whether it would be a suspension by the league whether it be community service whether it be some other initiative that the courts come up with i don't know um what's what's it what's also interesting is that um the accuser wasn't originally going to press charges but she found out through uh the landlord of the building or the building manager that apparently austin's dad uh brian matthews didn't really fully believe her story um and then she pressed charges as a way of saying I'm going to show you that I'm not lying, and this is, in fact, what your son did. Right. So I, I think that her story should be heard, and whatever happens, happens. And I hope I never hear another story like this involving Austin Matthews ever again. And I, I believe the guy has good character. He made a bad decision. He's got to learn from it. And this is a good opportunity for the NHL to make an example out of Austin Matthews by means of bringing this issue to the forefront and telling people how they should behave because you might assume that everyone is a good person and they're going to be good model citizens but the fact of the matter is people make mistakes and sometimes it's it's good to have a refresher and remind people that hey this isn't cool and it can't be tolerated yeah for sure this kind of reminds me of uh when um i mean obviously it's uh it's a little this is a little bit more serious but uh this kind of reminds me of uh claude Giroux, uh being uh, disruptive towards that cop um, a couple of years ago. Um, there's also mm. like Ryan O'Reilly uh, drove into a Hortons. Um, Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons. Uh, that's another big one. And then just as like an American hockey fan, I have to think about that Patrick Kane punching a cabbie. Um, and it's like, like, you know, the two best American hockey players uh, we have are, I mean, obviously, like Johnny Gaudreau, Dylan Larkin, Jack Eichel, all those guys. Those are, you know, those are also good. But, like, Austin Matthews and Patrick Kane are kind of marketed as being, like, the savior of American hockey. And they're both, like, bad players. You know, they're both, like, I, I want to believe that they're good people. I've given up hope that Patrick Kane is a nice person. Um, and now I'm starting to think that Austin Matthews is not a nice person either. I mean, I know it's hard to judge someone based off of one incident. It just makes me disappointed more about like, like he's supposed to be like, like bridge the gap between the casual hockey fans in America. And now I'm just like, I don't know. It's, uh, um, because Patrick Kane isn't like, didn't have the greatest reputation, even though he has the skill. Austin Matthews has the skill. He just, he's also like sort of following along Patrick Kane's footsteps just in the fact that he's like, he's touching the line with the law. Um, of course, Patrick Kane 
And then I mean, it's it's tough to say with Patrick Kane because he did he had two incidences. There's one where he punched a cabbie, um, and then there's the other like his sexual assault charges. But I'm talking purely on the 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 taxi thing because I mean the sexual assault stuff it's a little bit different, but um, it's still like you know it it's just uh, it feels like. Just as an American hockey fan, I just feel disappointed that uh, it's like Austin Matthews is supposed to be like represent U.S. hockey. Um, he has the, like he has what he's one of the best American hockey players we've seen, um, you know, at least in this decade. And now it's like he's like it's just a weird situation where I don't feel like he's a good representative of American hockey. Um, anyways. Uh, it's also speaking of which, I there was also like Toronto media was making it like the the next big debate after Marner signed was with um, like who's going to be the captain? Is Austin Matthews ready to be the captain? I think the funny thing is is that now it seems like Marner or uh, Willie Nylander after holding out for so long and getting that price tag they have a better chance of being the captain than Austin Matthews is. I don't know, like, I mean, obviously I, I'm not in the clubhouse, but um, I don't know how you could give Austin Matthews the the captaincy if after this. It's just um, weird. I mean, I guess you could give it to John Tavares um, as well since he does have the experience, but um, it seems a little, um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, Austin Matthews' captaincy... Um, odds of becoming the captain is uh is is not is not looking great i honestly even if this incident didn't come to light yep i still think matthews isn't captain okay i don't think you give him that kind of responsibility of giving of trying to lead the Maple Leafs to a Stanley Cup title, something they haven't done in over half a century. Yeah, I don't think you give it to a guy who's not even 25. John Tavares has been asked to carry a lot of the teams that he's been on, and he's been the captain of some of those teams. And he knows what it takes to lead. He's been through this rodeo before. He knows what the expectations of a captain are because he's been through them Austin Matthews isn't ready at age 21 or 22 to lead the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's not to say after the expiration of Tavares' seven-year deal that Matthews won't be ready then. I think what this does confirm is that he's not ready. Yeah, oh, no, I, I'll agree with that. But, I mean, on the other hand, it's like Connor McDavid's a captain. Uh, he was named captain when he was 20. Um, uh, Gabriel Landeskog was named captain like his second year um, in the league. There's a couple of guys who were named captains when they were as young as Austin Matthews. It's not completely unheard of um, to be named captain um, as young, especially if you're that good. Um, I think even John Tavares was named captain when he was 20 as well. Um, on the Islanders, so um, I don't think I don't take too much stock on the experience, but I will agree with you um, that I think this does hurt his chances of being uh, captain right now. Um, I think in regards to the McDavid situation, that was a baptism by fire. 
and they really didn't have much of an option and they just went with their gut and they gave it to him right away. Right. But what they about like have, they, Gabriel they Landeskog? They don't have to give it to Matthews right away. They have to bear us. But what about that way, uh, that way they buy Matthews some time and if they think he's ready at 27 or 28 with a new contract then maybe he gets it. What about uh, Land uh, Landeskog? He was given the captain like uh, his second year in the league. Yeah, I guess they could have given it to to Hayduk as well. That that was an that was an interesting call as well. To be fair. Yeah, it's but, true. I I guess it was a unique situation. I think there's another. Guy, I I would have to like, I I would have to look at all the different teams and see where their captains are. But that's another story. We're already going pretty long already. But, um, but yeah, yeah. I guess I I, I see your point. Uh, let's go to our our next uh thing, Braden Point. Um, he, uh, he signed and he kind of started things off now, um, where after Braden Point signed, everyone else started signing. Um, but Braden Point signs a three year, 6.75 million, um, annual average value deal. Um, he's still going to be an RFA next year, but I guess the thinking is, is that eventually he's going to be paid more. Um, in three years and he's just hoping that the contract like that you know he'll live up to this contract and then because the market will go up um, in the RF in that year and then he'll be able to be paid even more um, and be more appropriately paid uh, market value um, and it also allows the lightning to compete in the meantime um, so yeah, I like this deal. It is funny though, cons- uh, speaking of the Leafs, because you know Marner signs a ten million dollar deal, three million last week, and then the next big RFA signing signs for four million dollars less um, and uh, less term as well. So it's kind of like, and and now looking at what Rantanen got, what Line got, what Connor got, what Matthew Kachuk got, it's like uh, Marner kind of screwed the the Maple Leafs over because all the all those other guys signed for around this this value. Um, but let's not talk about the Leafs for a moment. Um, we already talked about them for a bit. Um, but uh, this this is a pretty good deal. This is a steal. Uh, he would be making a lot more money um, if he was on the open market, uh, of course, but because he is a center and all that stuff. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's there. Also, I should mention that he uh, he got surgery on his knee, and so he's going to be like out for at least this month of October. Um, but um, I guess that's why they signed, or that's what held it up, because then. Um, he had to get the surgery. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's gonna, I, I don't know. I like this deal. What, what, what do you think? Uh, just clarification of the injury was hip surgery. It oh. happened in the spring. So he had it before even all of this happened. My bad. <laughs> still back, still back for late October. Won't be there for opening night. Right. Okay. My bad. All right. He anyways. Come back when he does come back, man, this is, this is a bargain. Yep. This is a humongous bargain for the Tampa Bay Lightning. As a junior player, um, he played for Team Canada. He was the captain of his uh, junior team in his third and fourth years. In his second year, he was an assistant captain 
For three straight WHL campaigns, he had at least 35 goals and at least 80 points. Um, did that three straight years, then enters the 2016-17 season on Tampa Bay as a rookie when they go through that injury with Stamkos when a lot of their other guys were banged up. There was one point where I think it was Stamkos, it was Paquette, and it was Bill Pula that were all hurt. And yep. basically, like their fourth-line center was their top-line center or something crazy like that at some point in the season that was what they were dealing with it was that bad and they still missed the playoffs by one point they were still competitive that year uh, they traded ben bishop to tampa bay that year right um and while everyone was talking about oh look jonathan Druin, you know 50 plus point player you know this you know maybe this guy has a future with us Braden point was quietly racking up 18 goals and 40 points he was a top five goal scorer on the team um he only had 122 shots which was eighth on the team still picked up five power play goals um so uh, for a rookie you know he posted some pretty good numbers and he was shuffled around a lot of different lines um you know, some would feature Druin, others would feature Nemesnikov, who is in New York now. Um, others would feature Kalorn and Tyler Johnson and Andre Palat and Valtteri Filpola. And like I said, almost a 20-goal season, 40 points as a rookie, with everything that was going on with Tampa, with everything that was being thrown at Braden Point, he seemed to handle it pretty well. And then you get to 2017-2018, and... I'm going to talk about his breakout year shortly, but I think the year 2017-18 was probably the best season that Point has had to date. Yep. And he was largely because he was starting to get NHL attention and he wasn't really getting top-line minutes. He was a 30-goal scorer in 82 games. He had 32 goals. He had 66 points in 82 games, 217 shots on goal. So the shooting percentage didn't change all that much, but he was getting more shots. Um, the Bolts, again, at this point, still had a lot of quality shooters to work with. He still wasn't a massive power play threat, but in shorthanded situations, he was relied on a lot. He logged over 160 shorthanded minutes. Um, and he actually got three shorthanded goals that year. And um, it, interestingly enough, among NHL forwards, he actually was ranked 24th in shorthanded minutes uh, played in the 2017-18 season. So again, he was getting NHL attention, not just on his team. Um, he took almost 1,200 face-offs and increased his win percentage in the face-off dot by almost three full points compared to his rookie year. Um, and he spent over 160 uh, minutes of power play time too. So he was being utilized in every situation, even strength, um, five on five power play, four on four, shorthanded. He was being thrusted into all sorts of roles. And that resulted in him almost averaging 20 minutes per contest. Um, and this is where you really, really start to see his dominance. Um, he was 
in the top 30 for shorthanded minutes by forwards, but also in the top 35 in uh, wrist shot goals. He almost had a 20 goal season on wrist shots alone. He had 19 wrist shot goals. Um, he had 56 takeaways, which again put him in the NHL's top 35. Uh, he had 12 game winners tied for tops in the NHL with some guy named Nathan McKinnon. I don't know who he is. Yeah. Um, he was second Some's behind slug. your beloved Brad Marchand. Uh, four overtime winners for him. Uh, he opened the scoring seven times too. And he did all of that with 93 other forwards in this league, getting more power play time than he did. And he still turned the puck over just 23 times all season. And he still wasn't a top line guy so i took a look at some of the guys that he was playing with and i was just thinking hmm how did they do when Braden point was on their line so i i took a look at three of them one of them was yanny gord and in 2017-18 he got 25 goals and 64 points in 82 games 49 of those points came at even strength point was on his uh Braden point was on his line for 19 of those 49 points. So there's one. Tyler Johnson, been around the league for a while, pretty good player. Uh, that year he posted 21 goals and 50 points in 81 games, 35 even strength points. Point was on his line for 14 of those 35 even strength points. And then there's Andre Pallott, who only played in 56 games, but got 11 goals and 35 points. 25 of those points were at even strength. Point was on a line for 20 of those. And then we go to year three, where he's a 40 plus goal scorer in the top line, gets 90 plus points on the top line. And you can say all you want, oh, he benefited from Nikita Kucherov and his monster season. I'm sure Mitch Marner benefited from John Tavares and Austin Matthews. So what's your point? Braden Point at this price is a bargain and he is going to get paid in a couple of years when it's time until then tampa's got their window they're still gonna have a lot of money committed to their core players in three years time they're gonna have to work around the cap some more they got sorelli and sergachev to take care of at the end of this year but for three more years they got point under contract they don't need to worry about him and i think in two years from now Braden Point is going to do what Nikita Kucherov did and sign his monster deal then because he is going to get paid his due and he is going to have earned it. And I think it's going to be upwards of $9 million per year, just like Vasilevsky, just like Kucherov. Uh, and he's going to be paid handsomely for his worth. I guarantee you, if he was a UFA, teams would be knocking on the doors yep. to get this guy. Yeah, I think what helps it, or like compared to like Marner, is the fact that Marner is a right winger and Point is a center, um, yep. which makes this deal even more amazing considering the fact that centers generally do get paid more um, than wingers. And um, yeah, you're right. He he. This is a bargain for them, um, and they lucked out in that sense. But I should uh, also mention Braden Point had a 20 goal season on the power play. Yeah. It's also like he was, he's a big, because like, like, like to talk about what we already talked about with 
San Jose, it's like when you're not dealing with Eric Carlson, you're dealing with Brent Burns. It's kind of a similar situation in Tampa. If you're not dealing with Stamkos and Kucherov, you're dealing with Braden Point for yep. you know most of the game. So it's it's still like terrifying and stuff like that. It's also like if you're not dealing with Crosby, you're you're dealing with Malkin kind of thing. So um, yeah, he's he's a very good player. Um, the only issue I do, I the only concern I do have is when I hear that he has a hip surgery. Um, like I think back to like Vin, Vinny, uh, Vinny Trocheck, um, and yeah. how he was never really the same after after that injury. So it's like I I do kind of worry about like oh he's he signs now. Um, I do wonder if like oh is this gonna be a sign of things to come or or is this just gonna be. Um, you know, or is this just a blip on the radar? We shouldn't even like, I'm going to forget about this next year kind of thing. So that's where I get a little concerned, but only because he's getting surgery and that's something that should be concerned, concerning. Um, but I, What's I, also you interesting know. is, you know, he, he, you, you look, you look at Braden point and the fact that he was playing with Kucherov a lot of the time. Yeah. If you're putting Braden Point and giving him more ice time with Kucherov ahead of Steven Stamkos, that's got to tell you something, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's another thing too. Yeah, I guess that's true. But like, it's it's to the fact that like Point can do well with, even without Stamkos and Kucherov. That's what's yeah. more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's go to the last thing. Um, it's already a long episode, but whatever. Um, uh, the uh, Justin Folk gets traded. Um, he's going to St. Louis. Um, and uh, so going with him is a 2025th. Um, coming back to Carolina is Joel Edmondson, Dominic Bach, and um, a 2021 yeah 2021 seventh round pick um of course if this 2021 seventh round pick was not involved i don't think this happens um but no i mean no this is a this is a good deal um i i like this trade actually for both sides um in a way i feel like um it's good for the blues in the short term um in the sense that the blues next year uh, Alex Petrangelo is going to be a UFA, um, and uh, there's also, you know, Braden Shen's also going to be a UFA, who they're going to worry about, but the main one is Alex Petrangelo, um, and Justin Falk then signs a $6.5 million contract uh, for, I think, six years. Um, he gets that extension. Um, the thing is, is Justin Falk is 27 years old. Alex Petrangelo is 29, um, and this this is just a sign that like like you're gonna either this just shows that Petrangelo is probably not gonna be on the team next year uh, because if you sign a guy like that uh, for the contract that he has, it's it just kind of shows like okay, Alex Petrangelo is probably not gonna be on the Blues next year. Um, however, that means that they're gonna be going for it this year. Um, and because they have a guy like Petrangelo and they're going to be going for it, uh, this year, 
Um, I also found this stat when I found it. Um, I lost it, but I believe it was since like 25 years ago. Uh, the last five years, uh, Justin Falk has the, mo the fifth most goals uh, by a defenseman um, out of any defense you know out of any defenseman and that was just an impressive stat there's other stats too i think i showed it to you steve i don't know if you saved any yeah, of the stats I have, it, I, have it, I have it in front of me okay can you say them so, quickly or yeah so here's the stat over the past five years amongst nhl defensemen justin falk did that justin falk ranks seventh in goals oh seventh okay fourth in power play goals Fourth in game-winning goals, 25th in total points, 25th in time on ice per game, and 21st in even strength time on ice per game. Over yeah. the past five years amongst NHL defensemen, Justin Falk is top 10 in some of those areas, top 25 in the others. And what's so amazing... Yeah. And what makes this stat even more amazing is like, I mean, last year he had 11 goals. Uh, the year before that he had eight goals. Um, I mean, yeah, he had seven, but like that was because like Dougie Hamilton had more of a role. Uh, uh, Jacob Slavin had more of a role. Uh, like Justin Falk wasn't being used a lot um, on the power play, yet he still had the, he put up that number. So it's just impressive that he's able to even like be that good, um, even still. Um, I mean, I'm sure he has like defensive, like you know, deficiencies, of course. But um, like that's very good. Like if you put up those numbers as a defenseman, it kind of makes up for it. Um, and so, so in that, so just that extension that just shows to me that the Blues are doing this for the few like they're doing this for the short term um and they're they're very high on him because they signed him for a long term um and the fact that he's a little bit younger than petrangelo i don't know it just shows that however in the long term i'm not sure if this is very smart uh because they treat a guy like dominic bach uh last year in the shl he had 23 points in 47 games um, I really like Dominic Bach. Um, he he had a great. Um, I think he had a good uh, international record too. But like, I mean, obviously that's like nothing to sneeze at on the SHL. Twenty three points in forty seven games. It's hard to score in the SHL. Um, and you know he was able to do that um, at a twenty um, at a as a nineteen year old. Um, so, and like he was one of German's best players whenever they were doing international play. So, um, like he may not be in the league this year. He may not even be in the league next year, but when he's in the league, he might be like one of the, like a scary player to, to play against, or, you know, he's going to put up points. And, um, so I feel like, you know, at that point, it's just going to be a crazy thing. So I don't, I don't like this trade for the Blues in the long term because I'm very high on Dominic Bach, um, and I feel like he's going to be a, a big-time player for Carolina um, when the time comes.
So uh, we'll, we'll take a look at uh, Justin Falk's uh, stats a bit more in depth, but uh, let's stay on that Carolina tangent while we're talking sure. about the Hurricanes and what they got. Oh yeah, they also lose Joel Edmondson, who's a pretty good defensive defenseman. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's that's another factor too when you have to think about it. Even for the short term, you know, Justin Falk isn't great defensively speaking, and uh, Edmondson is good defensively speaking. So that like you know, the Blues may not be as good defensively um, because of that this trade. Yeah, and um, uh, Joel Edmondson, by the way. Um, inked um, a deal with the help of an arbitrator and is still a pending unrestricted free agent after this contract is up. So uh, Don Waddell still has to re-sign him at some point if, if he thinks he's uh, a good long-term solution in the fold. And I think in terms of shutdown defensemen, that's what the Hurricanes were lacking. And that is exactly what Joel Edmondson is. He is not a guy like Bobby Orr. He does not have that offensive upside to him, although in, in his first 21 games of 2017-18, he did have six goals and two assists. So, you know, maybe he can chip in the odd um, offensive streak here and there. But for the most part, he's a guy that hits and blocks shots and shuts down the other teams, Bobby Orris, the other team's talented players. Um, as a rookie in the NHL in 2015-16, he only played 69 games, uh, averaged just under 15 minutes per game, and he had 165 hits, which is relatively efficient. Um, over the past two years, he's averaged near or just over 20 minutes per game. He's accumulated over 100 hits, over 100 blocks, and over 100 shots in each of the last two years. And... I think he provides an element that the Hurricanes didn't have on defense was that physical shutdown guy. And he brings about quite a bit of size as well. Uh, he's six foot four, 215 pounds. So he's got that big frame and um, it's, uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how he slides in with that Hurricanes defense. But I think ultimately he's going to make them tougher to play against because the reason why Justin Falk wasn't getting as much ice time as you mentioned, Brett, is because Brett Pesci, Jakob Slavin, and uh, guys like that were getting more ice time. And now you add Jake Gardner into that mix. Uh, why would they need Justin Falk now? So um, they need a guy like Joel Evanston. They don't need a guy like Justin Falk. And they get another prospect with upside as if they don't have enough of those. They still have Jake Bean on defense, Alex Andelkovich in uh, the minor league, still developing as a goalie of the future, potentially for them. Um, Dominic Bach, it adds to prospects like Morgan Geeky, the guys you're going to be introducing in the next couple of years. And you're right, uh, he does have upside, and I'm interested to see what he brings uh, to the fold. They also have Ryan Suzuki, the brother of Nick Suzuki, um, so there, there's definitely a lot of transition for Dominic Bach. He hasn't played North American hockey. He's going to have to get used to that at some point, but he's 19. There's still time to mature his game. Um, and in a couple of years, we'll see how good, just how good he can be. And what's also underrated about this deal is that the Canes actually saved just over a million in cap space while the Blues 
are one of the nine teams at the moment above the cap. They're above it by at least $1.5 million uh, following the transaction. So they'll have to get back down to the salary cap at some point. Now, getting to, back to Justin Falk, I agree that he makes the Blues a better team. When you look at his stats from last year, you mentioned the 11 goals. Um, he also had 35 points in 82 games. That's his sixth straight year with at least 30 points. His fourth season with at least 10 goals in his past five NHL campaigns. Averaged no fewer than 22 minutes per game in a season his entire career. At times, he's averaged between 23 and 24 minutes per game every season. His average of 22 minutes and 25 seconds this past year was the second lowest average of his career and his 217 shots in 82 games were the third most he's ever posted in a single nhl campaign and while we're on the topic of shots on goal he's posted 200 plus shots in four of the past five seasons with a, with his lowest total during that stretch being 184 a couple of years ago and uh justin folk a lot of people don't know this, but he's also a pretty big guy. Six yeah. feet tall, but weighs 217 pounds. He's posted more than 100. He's posted more than 100 hits for six straight years, and he even had time to block 121 shots last year and still be productive on the power play. So you look at his power play presence and what he brings, and what he was able to do with the second lowest ice time of his NHL career. Honestly, that was better than the year he nearly scored 50 points. Justin Falk had a very efficient season. And from a special team standpoint, he's posted half of his NHL stats on the power play. So, you know what? All the power to the Blues. You have a top 10 power play. You want to add to that? You go out and get a, a guy like Justin Falk, uh, a guy who's played in a lot of power play schemes. Um, he's actually the only Hurricanes blue liner in the past four years to record at least 200 minutes of power play time. And when I say he's the only Canes blue liner to do that over the past four years, he's done it every single time the past four years. Yeah. So this guy has a lot of power play mileage. I'm talking six, almost six, over 1,600 minutes of power play mileage in his NHL career. And he's also fifth in the NHL amongst takeaways, amongst defensemen with 375 since his entry into the NHL. So he, he's, he's pretty good at forcing turnovers too. But you mentioned what the Blues already have. They already have Alex Petrangelo. They already have Colton Pareko. And like Justin Falk, they shoot right. He is entering the same damn problem he left behind in Carolina, where one of Alex Petrangelo, Justin Falk, and Colton Pareko will be a third pairing right-handed defenseman. All of them make upwards of $4 million. And in Justin Falk's case, for the next seven years, his cap rate will be $6.5 million after this year. Yep. So if they keep Petrangelo, Pareko, and Falk on board next year, one of them is going to be making over $5 million 
as a third pairing right-handed shot. And who says they're going to be as good as they were in previous years when they're at a lower tier in the lineup? True. Like, if you put Kucherov on the fourth line, is he going to score 100 points? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't yeah. know if he's going to score 100 points on That's the fourth a good point. line because you, fourth line players, like, just don't get the kind of opportunities that the top line players do. Yeah. It, it, it's going to affect one of those three guys. And I, I. I, I do worry about the long-term solution because we talk about Justin Falk scoring 10-plus goals a season. The Blues got 10-plus goals from Petrangelo, Pareko, and Vince Dunn last year. So it's not like they need another defenseman who can score 10-plus goals. They have three on their roster already. And the biggest challenge, Brett, you mentioned is working around the cap. Depending on what he does in the next two years, Jordan Bennington could get a lot of money. Braden Shen is a UFA after this year. Not a defenseman, but still a key piece to this team. Vince Dunn, RFA after the season. 12 goals, 35 points last year. You also have Sammy Blay, Robbie Fabry, Robert Thomas, Ivan Barbashev, Zach Sanford. All within the next year or so are going to be RFAs. And yeah, you might have contracts like Steen, guys like uh, contracts like Jake Bonister, contracts like Tyler Bozak that are all going to be expiring by the end of July 2021 when Bennington is due to get paid. So that could help out their cap, but I don't know if it's going to be enough to keep that trio of defense together. And if it honestly costs Alex Petrangelo, a guy who I think is a better all-around defenseman than Justin Falk, a guy who has posted 50-plus points three times in his career which Falk has never done who's posted 40 plus points in a season four times in his career a guy who is their captain a guy who is their leader a guy who does every single little thing right and is also a top 10 generator in shots amongst defensemen since the year Justin Falk entered the league if bringing in Justin Falk means saying goodbye to Alex Petrangelo. This deal is a disaster. It's not because Justin Falk is a bad player. It means they've sacrificed Alex Petrangelo. It's like my analysis with the Duchesne for Tour Swap. Bringing in Duchesne only makes sense if he builds onto what you have. It doesn't make as much sense if you're giving up a veteran character guy like Kyle Turris. And I feel this is going to come back to bite the Blues. And the best case scenario is they keep Petrangelo, they keep Falk, and they trade Pareko and get good value in return. I don't feel comfortable making this trade if it means losing Petrangelo. I really don't. Um, so this may be our longest episode ever with that. I did not expect you. <laughs> from last week probably <laughs> no no do you know how long we're going right now uh probably three hours yeah we're about to hit three hours pretty soon um so because i did not expect you to have that much about this blues trade i thought you were just gonna say like whatever 
Yeah, we could just keep on going. This could be like a part of our lazy up lore where we just yeah, continue we'll, to talk. We'll stop now. And then we'll stop and now. then and then I'll be like, "Wait, I have to go to work." And then it's, you know, all that stuff. Uh but uh no, seriously, I hope you got I I honestly doubt anyone actually listened to this all the way through. If you did, I applaud you. Um, I don't know how we, I, I, don't, I wonder if we have to, like, we have to figure out a way to, like, if you listen to this the entire way, tweet at us, like, I don't know, tweet at us something, saying, like, I listened to it all. We should make, we should make a t-shirt that says, I survived the three-hour edition of the Lace Them Up podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's also funny, too, because this is also the first time we're recording in our history of recording because uh, I couldn't do um, the morning, the afternoons, uh, you can't do the nights, and this was literally the only time we could do, I was away this weekend, this was literally the only time we could do, we started at 9.30 at night, and it's yeah. now midnight and 30 minutes, um, and it's um, it's pretty crazy. Um, anyways... Um, I, you can check, check us out. I, you better follow Laysome Podcast. Uh, we're on Spotify and all, um, SoundCloud, um, all that stuff, iTunes. Um, yeah, that's about it. Um, I'm Brett Dubuff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll recap all the other RFA yeah. signings and all the other NHL news in episode 187 of the Lace Em Up podcast. And by the time we talk to you next, the regular season has begun. Yeah, sure. I guess that's that's how we should uh, that's how we should market it. We're we're just that excited about it that we'll talk about yeah. hockey for three straight hours. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, everything else. All right, bye. <laughs>